Hey everybody, Jace here. Real quick before we get started, I just wanted to ask you a huge favor. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I've been embarrassing myself on a weekly basis for this Bad Idea Fan Cup, and there is a tweet that is pinned to my profile on Twitter, and I just need you to go and like it. It literally will take you know 10 seconds to open up Twitter, type in twitter.com forward slash the comic source, and just like the video. Uh, if you want to retweet it, that's cool too. Um, but no quote t- tweets because it, I really just need the likes. So I appreciate everybody. Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of January 17th, 2023. Really good week of DC books this week. A lot of big titles. Get the second issue of the 60-second war. We get Batman Fortress. We get Nightwing 100. We get Stargirls. Uh, Yeah, just a really, really big week. Um, So I thought it was really solid overall, Rocky. What did you think? I well, there were some. Uh, there were some. I, I do think there were some stinkers here. I I'm always. That's the problem when when we have so many to review. I mean, we got I, what is it, thirteen or fourteen? So, I'm I'm batting a solid half that I I liked, and the other half were kind of meh. But uh, but still, look, that's still pretty damn good. I mean, if I'm if I'm liking sixty seventy percent of what I'm reading in a given week, and we're reviewing so many DC comics, that's I consider that a win. So I, you know, I'm I'm smiling this week. I'm smiling more than I'm, uh, you know, sad. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, as we break these down, sometimes, I, yeah, sometimes my knee jerk reaction is, man, that would really was only okay. And then, like when I start. Talking about it, when I break it down, I find out that, yeah, maybe I liked it a little more than I, I thought initially. <laughs> so before we dive into the book, so I do have a favor to ask everybody. Um, I don't know if you guys follow me on Twitter, but if you do, you see that I'm embarrassing, embarrassing myself on a weekly basis with this bad idea fan cup that I'm trying to win. Yes, you are. <laughs> stuffing my mouth with 28 peeps or dressing up like a werewolf or a cowboy or whatever. So this week's challenge, uh, I have a tweet that needs to get 100 likes. Uh, it's pinned to my Twitter right at the top. So if you go to twitter.com forward slash the comic source, all you have to do is like the tweet. You don't have to watch the video. I prefer if you didn't watch the video, because as I said, it's pretty embarrassing. But I just really need everybody, if, if you have Twitter, please just go over there. It'll take 10 seconds. Go over there. You don't even have to follow me. Just go to my Twitter account, twitter.com forward slash the comic source, and just like the first tweet you see there that's pinned. So that being said, let's go ahead and dive into the first book. Uh, World's Finest, number 11. Mark Wade is the writer. Dan Moore on art. Tamara Bonvillon does the color. Steve Wands on letters. I have a feeling, Rocky, that you probably like this more than me. You were really excited when we found out that this kid who'd come in from another dimension was perhaps Magog. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with Magog, he was basically the main villain of the Kingdom Come story that Mark Wade did with art by Alex Ross, which was, a, it's an evergreen, you know, title, graphic novel, what have you from DC. It's always in print and it's an amazing story. And then Magog eventually, and it, supposedly that's kind of Elseworlds or, you know, a different 
um, kind of universe or multi, you know, part of the multiverse of, of DC comics, but eventually Magog came over to the main DCU. So I'm not, I'm honestly not sure where, how it stands with Magog these days. Is there, are there different versions of him depending on which part of the multiverse you're in? That's entirely possible. But the, the hint here recently has been that this David character that came from another dimension from another parallel universe into the main DCU here um, was possibly somebody who was going to evolve into Magog at some point. So in this story, we've had the, the key who's a old school JLA villain from way back in the sixties. And Mark Wade has made him much more malevolent and much more formidable, uh, much more evil in a lot of ways to the point where he's, kind of calling the shots even over the Joker, which is so, I mean, you could even say that Mark Wade has made the key sort of Joker-like in a lot of ways, but the that extra edge of insanity, uh, rather, it's like this: the key is just this genius guy who's just evil and you don't want to mess with him, kind of like the Joker used to be before they made him kind of zany and, and uh, insane and unpredictable. Um, so I've liked that change with the key, but it is disturbing in, in a way. But regardless, the key has manipulated David and messed with his mind and inherent to the guilt, the survivor's guilt that he feels and kind of the angst of being a teenager with these powers. Um, he's, he's not controlling himself very well. And the hero, other heroes, specifically Batman and Robin, have really told him, hey, you need, you need to keep under control. We don't hurt people. We don't kill people. But David seems to want to lash out for those reasons that I've said. And he did so at the end of last issue. And so at the beginning of this issue, it looks like Batman and Superman have had this conversation. And, you know, just like a scene out of Superman 2, they're going to throw David in this chamber and they're going to remove his powers. I thought that was awfully heavy handed. Like there are so many young heroes that make mistakes and they don't just automatically go and remove their powers. Um you know, you could look at what they're doing in the pages of Blue Beetle right now where they just tell him, don't, you know, don't use your powers. They've talked to David about it. Maybe the, the fact that David is so powerful. Um, I think Batman at one point says like an infant with a machine gun. So maybe it's the level of power. Um, but I just, man, it didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel right. And Superman, to his credit, does at the last moment stop. Um is, you know, maybe his, his better angels prevailed, but I, the fact that they were even willing to go that far, like I get Batman's paranoid, right? Like you talk about brother eye and all that stuff that caused problems. You could see Batman going down, down that path. I can't believe Superman would ever even agree to it in theory. Um, so that bothered me a little bit. And frankly, I expect more from, from Mark Wade. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. It felt like the easy way out in a, in a lot of ways, but then ultimately David ends up leaving this multiverse anyway. Um, sort of not by his own volition, you know, the, the ship that he traveled in, the key went to the fortress of solitude and tried to steal it. He activated the ship. They were able to defeat the key, Batman, Robin and Superman along with David. Um, but the ship had been activated and because David's the same from the same universe, same vibrational frequency, he gets pulled along with it. And of course he goes to some other parallel universe where Gog is there. So again, the implication being that he's eventually going to become Magog and even says not the end, uh, even though it's the end of the story arc. So it kind of, kind of cool, kind of a new origin for Magog in a way. Um, but despite the little part 
you know, plot point that I didn't like about them willing to strip the powers from this kid. You know, he's already lost everything, right? He's lost not just his mother and father, but, and not just his planet, like, you know, Superman, you could say he's lost a pl- his home planet of Krypton. This guy's lost his entire reality. His entire reality has been erased from existence. And I don't know that we ever got like an explanation of how or why his reality was uh, erased, but be that as it may, um, it's a solid, interesting issue for people that are big uh, Kingdom Come fans. I'm sure they're going to like this. Uh, and it's a, it's a solid story. I mean, I, I, I give Wade a lot of credit for making it feel like a DC book. You know what I mean? Like classic DC. Um, and I'm always going to read Mark Wade when he's writing Superman, Batman, pretty much anybody in the DCU. I, I like his DC work more than his Marvel work. Um, so despite, like I said, that little plot twist that I, or plot point that I didn't necessarily care for overall, I felt this was a really strong arc and this is a really strong book. Um, the only other thing I'll say is the Dan Moore art, the Dan Moore art throughout this run has been fantastic. Um, but I do feel like this is some of the weaker art that he's pulled in so far. Yeah. Only because a little rushed. Delta, yeah. It doesn't feel the line work doesn't feel as clean. It doesn't feel as finished or as polished as it has felt in the past. And, but you know, I'd say it's like 80% of some of his, you know, best work on this book, but Dan Moore at 80% is still like way better than a lot of people. So, <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's still, yeah, I mean, the storytelling is still fantastic and the emotionality, all the body language and what have you is still great. It just, yeah, kind of on the finish, it just didn't look as finished or as polished as it usually does. So anyway, what were your thoughts on this, Rocky? Well, I, I like the call. I love the callback to Superman too, with the, with the red solar chamber that takes away the superpowers. Uh, just in the Superman 2 movie when he's going to give up his powers in order at the behest of his mother saying if you want to love Lois Lane you've got to do so as a human and this chamber will take away your powers and and so we get here we get it used in a different way to potentially strip uh, David of his powers and uh, it's that and I, I actually I don't know uh, I dis I enjoyed that dilemma here I like the fact that Batman was prepared to take David's powers away uh, because this isn't like this isn't like Robin Robin screwing up. Uh, if Robin screws up, he doesn't destroy a city block or or endanger lives necessarily. Uh, you know, this is this is a superpower being who can't control his anger. And let's face it, has what they, they know has got serious potential anger issues because they know enough about his origin that he's guilt ridden from being the sole survivor of his own planet. And uh, his his own parents died because he riddled he fiddled with the ship, and so he's got he's riddled with guilt, and we know that from past issues. And and but but this is very much in keeping with Mark Wade because Mark Wade does have Superman do the right thing. <laughs> because Superman changes his mind, which frankly makes a lot of sense. Superman is under a lot of influence. He respects Batman. So he he knows David's a danger. But then, you know, Superman changing his mind, I think, adds to the dilemma and adds to the interest in this story. Because we as readers, you and I can disagree. Well, should David's powers be taken away or shouldn't they? It's an interesting question. And, and, and I like that the question is posed because it allows the reader... To, to, to reflect on the answer and, and that in and of itself, any story that makes me think is, is a win right there. And, and whether it's a positive or negative, wherever, whichever side you come down on in terms of whether David should have his power stripped away, I think it, it poses an interesting, it poses an interesting question. I love, uh, I'm, uh, Mark Wade also 
introduces other what I assume are Silver Age characters here because let's be clear people Mark Wade has forgotten more about Superman than all of us combined will ever know the guy's a Superman encyclopedia so uh, the key has all these villains that are helping him out uh, because he wants to uh, ultimately uh, gain the secrets of the multiverse through David Ship uh, that he arrived on Earth on and, and he's got these other we meet Bag of Bones Dr. Phoenix uh, Acid Master Ferlin Nixley uh, with his Devil's Harp and Zebra Man these characters which I'm assuming they must be from Silver Age stories. Maybe they're new. I don't know. I'm assuming Mark Wade probably... I never Googled any of these characters. They probably exist uh, somewhere in Superman's Silver Age comic books. Uh, that's That would be my guess, but you know, people in the chat can let me know if, if these characters actually exist. I don't know if I'll have time to Google them, but I kind of like them, and I, I like the fact that they're, it's... it's it, This is action-packed, and I, I love the fact that it ended with... Uh, them winning the day, David, uh, the key, getting into David's head, but David defeating the key and Superman preventing Batman uh, from essentially holding, interfering with David's uh, altercation with the key because Batman was afraid that David was going to kill the key. And uh, But Superman had, had enough faith to let David uh, confront the key himself and David chose not to kill him. And so that was at least a, a temporary victory. Ultimately, at the end, where, where David is transported to another Earth, was uh, where he meets Gog. We know his destiny is to become Magog. We also know what Magog's destiny is in Kingdom Come, who, I mean, Magog is the one who killed the Joker in Kingdom Come, which set off the events uh, of Kingdom Come, which uh, those of us who, well, Kingdom Come is a classic story. Go out and buy it, people, if you've not read it. And uh, I like this. Where does David end up at the end of this issue when he's transported off this earth because his vibrational frequency matches that of his ship, which the key turned on and it, it, it teleported away? I'm guessing it could be Earth-22, which is a kingdom come Earth. It could be another one of Earths in the infinite number of Earths we have out there. But uh, it is teased that it's not the end at the end of this issue. So I quite enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's one, of my, uh, it's one of my more enjoyable this week. Uh, again, I thought it was really solid. Um... And I'm curious to see what the next arc is because Wade, like you said, he's been firing on all, all cylinders on these. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Gotham City Police Department, GCPD, The Blue Wall, number four. This is from writer John Ridley, drawn by Stefano Raphael, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Ariana Mayer. And this was kind of a holy crap yeah. issue. Um, so I'm going to let you go first. What do you think? Man, I <laughs> I love this issue. I said, uh, I've said, I think it was from issue one, I said this just harkens back to the great storytelling of uh, Gotham Central. And John Ridley has come under some uh, criticism for the way he's handled uh, I Am Batman and some other uh, DC titles. But I've been enjoying, you know, I, I think John Ridley in many ways was sort of ha handle, you know, handed a sort of, he was handed a bag of, Rotten Halloween candy to a certain extent. I mean, uh, with I Am Batman, uh, the idea of a black Batman, the story leading to it, that was a little bit, I'm not sure any writer could have could have done uh, a stellar job on that. As it turned out, John Ridley got me interested in Jace Fox's Batman, and I was interested in that, and I thought he did a reasonably good job. I, I loved his history of the, his other, other history of the DC Universe, I think is absolutely stellar. He's really good at dealing with those complicated issues of, of race and uh, and and the more problematic issues that arise in with uh, 
police departments, corruption, those types of storylines. And there's even a trigger warning at the beginning of this comic. So there's really no excuse for anyone. If you're reading this and, and that's your central complaint, just you were warned. So if you just want traditional com- superhero storytelling, obviously this comic is not for you. But this to me is just like... This feels like Law and Order to me. Uh, this feels like a police serial. And the character work here is just incredible. I love this. Uh, we got Danny Ortega, who is uh, the top of his class. He's a, he's a top of his class. He's a, he's a rookie police officer. Uh, and he... You know, he shot some, he shot a robber, uh, but he's of Mex, and so he's, he's a good cop, but he's of Mexican descent and there's prejudice against him in the department. And he's dealing with that prejudice and racism against him by his fellow officers. We got Eric Wells. He, uh, he lost one of his, uh, he helped, uh, he helped uh, a young, a young juvenile delinquent who, uh, ended up, uh, killing him, uh, sacrificing his life, killing himself. And, uh, this Eric character has wants to leave the police department because he he's got he, he has his he has the, he he wanted to be a hero he wants he wanted to help the people and he feels very guilty that he failed to help them and then we got the Samantha character uh, who ba- basically could not pull the trigger when she was under a lot of pressure uh, during a, a high uh, a stop in a bank robbery and um, she's uh, and she's it's this story the we're in the fourth issue here and this is really the story about these three rookie cops Danny Eric and Samantha who they the, the young rookie cops and they're friends with each other and they want to help each other and it's through their conversations and through their story juxtaposed against the story of Commissioner Rene Montoya who's trying to manage the police department as a whole that we really get some good character work here and uh it's it's a, a brief summary of this doesn't do it justice. You really got to you got to really get into this story and what what makes this particular chapter fourth chapter so gut wrenching is you see that the 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 police life is having an impact on on young Sam. She she comes upon a murder scene. She sees the body of a drug trafficker, a dead truck trafficker. It doesn't affect her. She feels numb. Um, even. Uh, you know, Eric's quitting the department with because he's he's he feels he's failed himself. And Danny Ortega, uh, the the young uh, Hispanic uh, police officer, feels feels numb as well. But he he he's invited by his fellow cops because they he thinks they want to congratulate him for shooting a shooting a bank robber. But they just they tell him to invite his dad. But they just do that to to humiliate him and to to invite him to some place so they can make a mockery out of his heritage and it's it's very heavy-handed a little bit and i think that could possibly be a criticism the his fellow officers don't respect danny ortega and that 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 part's got wrenching and that's tragic but we also get renee montoya and she's struggling with it and we meet renee montoya we meet her brother benny uh benny and his girlfriend uh uh sandra and benny and sandra by uh actually by Renee Montoya, they buy her a puppy because she killed the goldfish that she had died at the end of last issue. And the goldfish was symbol was symbolic of, of 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 the fact that Renee wasn't very good at necessarily taking care of things that 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 are her own. And and it died last issue, and she was surprised that her brother Benny and his uh Sandra bought her this dog. And and so as we're as this as this story progresses, we're we're told the story through through Officer Danny Ortega as he's as he's trying to come to terms with what he wants to do to improve what he wants to do to uh, what 
on the surface sounds like he's gonna he wants to become a better cop, improve his standing with the department. He wants to fight against the racism in the department. He wants to do the right thing. And yet in a complete I was totally taken by surprise by this in a complete 180 and misdirection, which actually fits the character. He actually ends up becoming the villain in this story. Reminded me of that phrase from the, the Batman movie. You know, you you either become the you're either the hero you, or you or you you live long enough to become the villain. And and, and tragically, this young rookie, Danny Ortega, actually. He, he wants to rebel against the police, uh, against the force, and take revenge. He blames Rene Montoya for his plight uh, uh, as a as a discriminated against uh, member of the police department. And he ends up, unbelievably, it looks like he, he, he murders Rene Montoya's brother, Benny, and, his, and Benny's girlfriend, uh, Sandra, which is stunning. This is a major event. I mean... For those who are following Rene Montoya's uh, as a character, this has got to be an this is absolutely a seminal event in Rene Montoya's life. In major events in Rene Montoya's life, you could probably say when she came out in the Half a Life storyline in Gotham Central uh, under Greg Rock and Ed Brubaker, and the other major major event in her life was when she became the Question. And now I consider this a major event with the loss of her brother as she's become commissioner. And so this is a very, this is not a happy for four issues. Okay. But you can't, you can't accuse, you can't accuse John Ridley of not having some bang up character development here. And uh, this, this, this issue had an impact on me because I was, I was just blown away by, by the events and it caught me by surprise. And I'm still sort of processing it and trying to uh, process what happened. And, and I read this story three times because I wanted to, and I quite enjoyed it. So uh, what do you think? Yeah. I, I mean, when this you know, purported cop who who all he's ever wanted is to be a policeman and do good, whatever. When he shoots Renee's brother and fiance at the end, I was like, holy shit. I did not expect that at all. I, I sort of thought, okay, this cop's doing everything right and he's getting all this crap. Clearly racism going on in the department. And it's very meta, you know, here in the, the U.S. I mean, that it's been proven that there's a lot of white supremacists in police departments and it's not – I don't, you know, buy into the conspiracy theory. They're trying to take over or what have you. I, I just think that there are certain people that are, you know, certain personalities, certain dispositions that are drawn to being a police officer, right? Like you get to carry a gun and, you know, you get to tell people what to do. And so it attracts a certain type of person. And these type of per people have some of them have a tendency to be intolerant of anybody who's different from them, you know, regard. So whether you want to call it, racism or ageism or, you know, uh, they even dislike people that are, that are white if they don't agree with them politically. So they're just very close-minded, in, intolerant people. And that's what Ridley is kind of examining here. So it rings very, very true. Um, I did find it a little surprising, and I'm sure this is just for the expedience of the story's sake, to see somebody like Danny Ortega, who top of his class, who has every potential to be a really good police officer for him to become radicalized so quickly kind doesn't kind of ring true. It's, it's one of two things. Either he wasn't predisposed to be a good police officer. Like we're kind of led to believe through the context of the story, you know, and he has some kind of psychotic tendencies himself, you know, antisocial behavior or what have you to be able to be radicalized so quickly. But again, it might just be for expedience of the story 
you know, how long are you going to drag this out? This guy going to put up with years of harassment and um, unfair treatment and that, that sort of thing. So it does seem like it's happened relatively quickly, but you could say the same thing about the uh, Eric, the other police officer who actually got into the um, probation department and, and quit after, you know, one of his uh, assigned cases, the guy basically committed suicide um, and he's already, you know, quit, given up. Like, I think these are things that, that certainly do happen, but I think it would take a little, little longer if I'm honest. So that part doesn't necessarily ring true, but again, I, I appreciate it for the expedience of the story. Uh, and then as far as the Renee Montoya storyline, I was like, yeah, she already killed a fish. So you get her a dog. Like that's worse. You know, what are you going to get, have her adopt a kid and kill that too? Like, you know, it's, <laughs> still get her a dog after she already killed a fish. Um, but I did think it was pretty funny that she's like, I killed the fish. I overfed it. You know, she takes full responsibility and her future sister-in-law is all what the fish couldn't exercise dietary, uh, restraint. Like, man, it's a goldfish. It doesn't have the ability. doesn't have the brain power to, uh, exercise dietary. So if you, if you put fish, if you put fish food in a fish bowl, the fish are going to eat it, eat it to the point of their stomachs will explode. That's just the way fish are. So anyway, a little, little bit of humor, not as much humor in this particular issue. Usually Ridley's good for three or four solid one-liners, but yeah, this was a much darker issue and it does seem like Renee Montoya is, is sort of walking a tightrope in her own life in terms of maintaining her sobriety, dealing with the stresses of the job. You know, maybe we never gave Commissioner Gordon enough credit for kind of the political aspect of his job and how he tried to stay out of politics and kind of was able to rise above it. I think Renee Montoya, and again, this is something that Ridley is portraying, I think, in a very realistic way. She's sort of unable to stay out of the politics of it. She's a woman. You know, she's she's in the role of police commissioner for Gotham City, where you know, wherein in the DC universe, everybody looks to Gotham City, everybody looks to the GCPD for gauging sort of how crime and you know is in urban areas and and how crime is to be dealt with, because we all know Gotham City has a very high crime rate, so they're held as you know they have a lot of eyes on them. Sometimes they're held up as an example of what not to do. And regardless of whether that's true or not, there's, they're, they're always under a lot of scrutiny and she's the commissioner. So there's going to be eyes on her and she's a woman. So that brings even more, Oh, look, you're going to have people on one side saying, look, a woman doesn't belong. You know, they, they don't believe women belong as on the police force at all, let alone in a position of authority. And they'll point to every failure. And then you'll have the other side that's saying, well, look at, there's some t- statistics that we get in this issue talking about how crime in Gotham City is actually improving in terms of the number of homicides and rapes and all that. Those numbers, the, the frequency of them are going down. So th- you have the other side that are going to point to Renee Montoya and say, look how successful she is. It's because she's a woman. It's because she's had to put up with all this stuff. She's also lesbian. So you have an, you know each one of these things, the fact that she works for Gotham City Police Department, you have one level of eyes. She's a commissioner, you add another level. She's a woman, you add another level. She's a lesbian, you add another level. She has all this pressure. She has all this pressure. She's not able, I think, inherently because of who she is, to rise above the politics of it like Jim Gordon was or was able to. So again, I think it's a a masterful job by John Ridley in portraying that accurately. And it's an interesting story, even if it has felt a little bit on fast forward to me, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah. Uh, only in terms of, man, it didn't take long for Danny Ortega, this cop who was probably a shining example of, of what you want in a recruit to right. completely flip and go the other way. And he's declared war on Renee Montoya. What does she have to do with, with you know, the corruption that's inherent in the system itself? Like, I get that he's going to blame her because she's, you know, head of the Gotham City Police Department. But, man, she's doing the best she can. And yeah, uh, she was pretty hard on them. She was pretty hard at them in 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 police. Uh, I oh, guess yeah. in police school. But I mean, understandably so, because in, in a way, she's Renee when she was yelling at them or teaching them, she was really teaching and sort of yelling at herself. Sort of the idea of a teacher learns more than the students type of thing. But I don't think Danny Ortega realizes that that she's she she feels yeah, that that's the it's sad tough part. Love. Yeah, it's it's tough love. It's like you you have to have a thick skin. Like you, if you're Danny Ortega, do you? You should not think for one second that you're getting it any worse than Renee Montoya got it in terms of being persecuted and ridiculed by fellow officers because she's a woman and because she's a lesbian. You, it's just it's you have to be the bigger person. You have to not take it personal. But some people aren't built that way. Okay. Some people are going to take things personally no matter what. And apparently, you know, Danny Ortega is one of those guys. So. Um, kind of sad to see in a lot of ways because he had all this potential, but I'd be lying if I didn't say he was the one recruit like early on that I kind of, I kind of didn't care for. There was something about him that rubbed me the wrong way. I don't know if that was purposeful for Ridley, but I, I just had a little more faith in the other two. Um, Sam probably because she was a little more unsure of herself, you know, there was some doubt there and that, I think you need that when you're in a position of authority, you need to, there needs to be some self-awareness that I, I, this is what I think. And this is my opinion, but I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong. It's like being open-minded, right? Like, I, I, it's funny. I, I felt I felt tragic tragedy for Danny because I I felt that I liked his character. I don't like you, but that's a testament to John Ridley's great characterization. Because I f- feel Danny, his father was part of the problem. His father was so relentlessly, you know, uh, ashamed. You know, his father is so cynical about life and about the police and about society, and constantly putting Danny down when he's trying to fight against the racism and everything that Danny, his son, would do. He's constantly putting him down. And, and that that last straw when he takes his dad with him to what he thinks is going to be a party in his favor from his fellow officers, and it's just another way of mocking him. It's his humiliation in front of his dad, and his, it was the final straw of his relationship with his father. And I think that was the the straw that broke the camel's back in this story. And it it was so well done, it was so well done. Well, I actually I actually like Danny more than ever, more than I ever did in the entire series at the beginning of this issue. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's being accepted because here's the thing, like he. He wasn't being accepted and he was being a whiny baby about it to his dad. But then he would turn around uh, when he talked to Sam and Eric and he would, he came across as arrogant, you know, and angry and I'm better than them. And how dare they put me down? Like there was just something about him that rubbed me the wrong way. Like it was almost like he was, you know, he was being bullied and he was trying to put on a front to his friends saying, "Ah, it doesn't really, whatever. I don't care, blah, blah, blah. When he turns around to his father and he's, he's complaining about it, he's going to his superiors and he's complaining about it. It's like, we'll do something about it. And, he, and to his credit, you know, he knows that what he did maybe shouldn't be praised and accepted by the other officers, you know, him shooting and killing a robbery suspect. 
Um, but yeah, he was to be, he looked like he was being accepted. So I agree with you, like kudos to, to Ridley, like that, you really feel for Danny when he takes his dad in, his dad's going to be all proud of him, blah, blah, blah. He opens up the door and it's just maybe the biggest piece of harassment, crappiest thing that the officers had done to him, you know, all along. But again, I do think it would take longer to get to the point where he'd flip out and start killing people, but apparently not. Maybe he was on the edge all along. So again, I, I give a lot of credit to Ridley for creating a, a story that's compelling and realistic and uh, ultimately maybe a little too much meta in terms of, man, our, our police here in the U.S., our, our police departments are not in good shape right now. So <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have uh, The Flash. This is The One Minute War, part two, a 10-second week. It's from writer Jeremy Adams. Pencils are by Roger Cruz, inks by Wellington Diaz, colors by Luis Guerrero, letters by Rob Lee. Uh, we learn a little bit more about what's going on. The invading force is called the Fraction. They're apparently there to strip the Earth of minerals, specifically hydrogen. And also, they talk about finding conduits. And on a planet this size, there's supposed to be one conduit. Apparently, what they mean by that, a conduit to the speed force. Like, they have access to the speed force. They land. There's the big citadel. And they are moving at, you know, they're tapped into the speed force, and they're moving at a very, very... Uh, fast pace. And that's why everybody else appears to be frozen. It's not that everybody else is frozen. It's that they're moving so fast. Everybody else appears to be frozen, except for those that have uh, their own connection to the speed, what the fraction calls conduits. So when the kind of the foot soldiers and lieutenants tell the guy that's in charge, hey, you know, there's a large number of conduits. Oh, well, on this planet, we expect to see one. No, there's five just in this immediate area. Oh my God, five. We have to capture them. We'll take them to the empress. We'll call it a wedding gift. Uh, she'll be very happy. You know, she's going to be happy enough with us based on the fact that this is a very mineral rich planet. So it's clear that this fraction um, invasion force is here to kind of strip mine. And apparently, I don't remember seeing it, but Jesse Quick alludes to seeing this uh, this fraction um, force, this fraction race or whatever you want to call it back in Flash 783. Uh, when she, they were searching well, for Barry. Yeah, what she actually she saw was, she saw the, yeah, I, I went back and I reread it. What she saw was the after effects of what the Fraction did. When they, exactly. when her and, uh, when her and Max Mercury went and looking for, when they were looking for Barry Allen, they, the Barry oh, Allen, it was, was on, the, the, it was on, the, was it was the on Mad, the, the Max Mad, Mad Max world. the Mad Max world. Uh, it was on the Mad Max world that was d destroyed in a dystopian looking world. That world had been stripped of its resources by the Fraction. Yeah, so apparently that's what this fraction is is here to do. And yeah, this this issue really ramps up. It gives us some context. It brings all the speed speed search together and they're starting to sort of figure out, okay, what's going on? Who are these guys? Now they got to figure out, okay, how do we stop them? There's also something going on between Max Mercury and Impulse that's mentioned. Um Max asks him, you know, how how have you been? Uh, and he says, oh, I'm fine. It's been babysitting Kid Flash. But wait, you you tried, di didn't you, to go further? He said, I did, but we'll have to talk about it later. So I don't know what that means. Go further, go for the future, go further, go further in terms of going faster. Like not sure exactly what's going on there. But there was a uh, a humorous moment early on between Impulse and Kid Flash when Impulse tries to vibrate through the wall of the Citadel. Um, that the fraction has established because they're trying to get in there to do some reconnaissance, figure out who these guys are. They can't run up the side of the wall because apparently it's frictionless and they're not able to vibrate 
uh, through it either. So clearly the fraction is very familiar with the speed force and they have countermeasures in place to prevent that. Um, if there's anything that I didn't like, and it's very, it's, it's a very, very small nitpick because I am really enjoying this. I thought it was, I thought it was better than average after the first issue, but the first issue was a lot of setup with how fast paced this issue is. And with everything we learned, I'm thinking I'm really going to love this event, except for, <laughs> and Rocky could probably predict what I'm going to say here. I mentioned this empress, uh, this guy that's in, in charge of this invasion force wants to capture these five plus conduits who we know is the Flash family, five plus, um, capture them and give them as a gift to the empress. And the way they're going to do that, there's some of the lieutenants, oh, we can handle it, we can handle it. And the guy's like, oh, like you did last time, I need these conduits alive, not, you know, ripped to shreds or whatever. So they're going to bring in like this secret weapon type person to, to capture them when we get the, you know, reveal as we often do on the final page of the issue. And it's a character called Miss Murder. And she comes walking out of her cage, I guess you'd say. And she's got a couple of these demonic looking dog-like creatures that have multiple eyes and fangs and <laughs> it's very strangely colored with gray and purple and blue. Um, and then she's wearing this like skin tight costume with like spikes on it. And instead of a full, like the ribbon style Cape um, and a little cliched felt a little nineties in terms of the look. Uh, and then she's, she's all shaved heads, all shaved with some white Mohawk. But worst of all, she's got like the round spiked thing around her head, just like the Batman who laughs last. I cannot stress enough how much I absolutely hate that design. I hate it on the, I don't like the Batman who laughs last as a character, but part of what I don't like about him is that wrap these spikes around. How, how <laughs> do you see? It bothers me every single time. Yeah. And it's bad enough with the Batman who laughs. And then we had late, uh, just recently the Harley who laughs last. And now this isn't the speedster who laughs last or what have you. She's called Miss Murder. But her look is so reminiscent of the Batman who laughs that you can't think of anything else. And I get that the Batman who laughs last is really popular. And so I suppose that's why they've gone with this design. But I just, I hate it. I hate it. And if it wasn't for the round thing around the head with the spikes, I I probably would just kind of shrug my shoulders and be like, okay, it's not for me. But I wouldn't actively <laughs> dislike it. But I so dislike that look of the round <laughs> spike thing. Like, yeah. how, how do you ever sit down in a chair, a high back chair? <laughs> how do you ever lay down? How do you do anything when you have these spikes protruding like six inches off your head? Well, you take it off. Like, can, can you take it off? Then, I don't then know. Please, for the love of God, Miss Murder, take it off. Because it looks so stupid. I will yeah. die on that hill. It is the dumbest looking thing. And don't get me wrong. I love Greg Capullo, both as an artist and as a person. He's amazing. But man, I don't know. I wish he had never come up with that design. I really, because it's popular. And if it catches on and we see even more characters, it's just going to start irritating me more and more. Like I, I, I cannot stand it. I, I just cannot stand it. So I'm going to stop ranting about it. Because again, it is a minor nitpick. I just... I hope she comes and goes quickly and I don't have to look at her because, God, I can't stand it. So anyway, what are your thoughts on the issue? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. There's, at one point, there's an editorial note in this issue that says uh, – that references uh, – at one point, this this 
the the general the we assume he's a general of the fraction army he references he talks about he wants to get he's he wants to capture all the organic conduits the organic and by organic conduits we mean those people who have an who can access the speed force which basically are the flashes and because a whole slew of organic conduits have been found and believe are are located on earth and of course that's basically the flash family but this general we don't get his name but the editorial note says, see the Flash One Minute War special. Well, that comes out next week, the Flash One Minute War special, or actually two weeks from now. Now, I have already read that. I won't spoil anything. And I also won't say his name, but this general's, this these characters' names, we're not given the names of these characters, and it's a little frustrating. I actually think, having read Flash One Minute War special, that it ought to have come out before this issue. To be honest, I think it would have made more sense from a narrative point of view. That's a little bit of a nitpick, but it's there's enough here to tease the reader because when this general clad and he looks pretty cool, he's got this glowing red, he's got this almost look like a Iron Man arc reactor in the middle and he's, he looks pretty intimidating and he's the general of the fraction. He wants to get a hold of these organic conduits and he and what he talks about, he talks about an organic conduit that they that they captured on a dark world, which I assume means somewhere in the dark universe. So is that a, that's a reference to the dark universe. So, and then all of a sudden we get this Miss Murder coming out. And what's interesting to me is, I'm wondering who who is this Miss Murder an analog of? When she first comes out, I got vision, versions of Harley Quinn because I think of the two hyenas. So when this Miss Murder comes out and she wears the Batman who laughs spiked around her eyes and these two dogs, is, is this like a dark universe's version of Harley Quinn? Uh, but I'm thinking, well, no, this wouldn't this be a dark version of a Flash character in the Flash family because she has access to the Speed Force. So this would be a dark universe character that is a conduit for the Speed Force. And as you can infer that from what the general says. So I'm really curious, who is this? She's got her mouth taped shut. So is this, is this a Miss Martian character? Is this a magenta? I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of all the people in Flash's rogues gallery that might have access to a fleet for speed force. Is this like a reverse, a female reverse flash in the dark universe? I don't know, but it's, it's I, one can speculate. We're gonna, we will be getting more information about Miss Murder moving forward, obviously. But I, I quite enjoyed this issue. There were great character moments. You talked about them already. I, I won't, I won't belabor the fact. Uh, this is a callback. Uh, we did get a, we we didn't know it at the time, but in a previous issue of Flash, we we did see a world that was left destroyed in the in the Max Mad Max world where that. Uh, Barry Allen race car driver was on that particular world when they were looking for Barry Allen. Uh, you know, just a lot of good character moments here. A lot more battles against the Fraction. It's really cool to see. Uh, and by the end of this issue, as I could get it, only uh, 20 seconds have passed. Now, this is a 60-second war. There is one point, it, it, uh, the caption reads, 20 seconds have passed. So we got 40 seconds left in this war. <laughs> just kind of funny to, to, to think of it that way. So I just love this. Jeremy Adams is having a lot of fun. Roger Cruz's art here is uh, is better than the opening issue. I enjoy, I like I liked this uh, art a lot more. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I just want to confirm that, uh, yes, Roger Cruz did all the pencils and the inks, Wellington Diaz, maybe maybe it's a different inker, but I, I, I like the art better in this second chapter than I did the first. But I'm very happy with this and I, I'm sure people who've been along for the ride so far, uh, you know, continuing to show some love for Jeremy Adams. He's doing a really good job on this.
Yeah, I mean, no surprise. Jeremy Adams is a favorite of ours. He's just been killing it on all these uh, these flash books. So, yeah, I'm excited that he's getting his own event. And so far, it's off to a great start. I am going to ask him next time I talk to him, though, did you have a de- hand in the design of <laughs> Miss Murder? Because, man, next time, ask me. Like, I, you know, he cares what I think. But anyway, uh, up next, Black Bolt, or Black Bolt, Black Adam number seven. The issue is entitled Bolt, and apparently that's the new superheroic name of uh, the nephew of Black Adam or descendant or, or what have you. But anyway, it's written by Christopher Priest, Jose Luis, and uh, Jonas Trinidad on art. Matt Herms on colors. Willie Schubert handles the lettering. Um, I'm going to let you go first because, honestly, I feel like I'm a bit lost in this series. Uh, I know that's – usually it's yeah. the other way around, but – Man, yeah, I have there, a hard time following this one. Sure. There's a couple of plot points here where I got a little uh, – I have to need to refresh my memory. I'm, I'm a little bit lost too. Uh, Black Adam doesn't even show up in this issue. He's not anywhere in this issue. It's all White Adam and Mirror Master of all people. Now, that's not to say some interesting things don't happen. It just seems uh, – it was disappointed that Black Adam wasn't here. Now, basically this issue involves Malik. He's at, actually – Malik, who is this White Adam, Malik is in his uh, – apartment and he's looking for the ring because uh, he's looking for the ring because he thinks uh, he's he thinks that the ring is what's causing his hand to get all uh, crispy and, and might might disintegrate away like Black Adam did in the first issue uh, before coming back. And uh, this he's wondering where Black Adam is. He's wondering where Teth Adam is. Lots of people are wondering where Teth Adam is. But this takes place during uh, the dark crisis and so and there's actually scenes at the beginning that show that while Malik is in his apartment looking for this looking for this eye of her eye of Hurin, which is in this ring that Teth Adam was wearing uh, it shows that Black Adam is actually uh, in the midst of the dark crisis and meanwhile we have this Sargon character who needs this ring wants, wants this ring for reasons which Frankly, if I knew the last time, if I don't know why he wants this ring, I'm, I'm not really sure what the significance of the ring is. This uh, Sargon refers to himself as King of Akkad, King of Summer, Overseer of Ishtar. There's a lot of references here. Chris, writer Christopher Priest has drowned this storyline in, in Egyptian gods, Egyptian mythology in a way that it, it makes it a very, very uh, challenging read. Uh, it's the, the read, the, the, the plot is there, but it, 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 it it assumes a lot on the part of the reader's discipline to really um, <laughs> follow very closely all the thing that's said. Um, Malik, Malik is looking. Malik changes into Shazam, says Shazam, and he and he follows. He he, he has Teth Adams iPhone, if you can believe this, and he, he looks <laughs> because Teth Adam is also an ambassador and he has a phone. And he the last communication that Teth Adam got. Uh, was at a particular warehouse, where, and then he goes to this warehouse where inside the warehouse is uh, it's so bright. This warehouse is very dark. The moment he enters the warehouse, a bright lights come up, and he believes Malik concludes that the reason why the lights are so bright is because it, it's fe- the lights are feeding off of him for some reason. So he says Shazam, and it changes him back into Malik, and then he becomes he he. And then he becomes trapped in this warehouse because it was actually a trap that, that was initially set that was 
perhaps initially set to capture Black Adam, and he, he there's a VR set, a virtual reality set there that he puts on, and he meets a virtual reality version of Black Adam called the Mighty Adam, uh, which I, I don't know why that's in the VR set. I'm not really sure why that is, but uh, apparently the the um, there's a lot of mirrors in this warehouse and the mirrors are the mirrors tip off mirror master because the mirror master who's currently a member of task force X, he, the mirror master is actually a somewhat of an anti-hero in this issue. He, he knows that some, he, he figures that he concludes that a young kid has, is falling into this sort of this death trap because this is a, a death trap. That's sort of been, somebody has reworked one of mirror master's, uh, death traps and once you're in this death trap once you're in this mirror world you, you lose oxygen and you slowly die Malik eventually gets out of it by going into the by going back into virtual reality world and be, and he can't say the word Shazam in, in our world in the real world because there's something's affecting his state of mind uh, because of the way the trap set up but he goes back into the virtual reality world the VR world and sh- says Shazam and that allows him to escape but not before uh, it renders him unconscious and it ends with Mirror Master looking over an unconscious Malik. And we don't really get a lot of plot progression here. We get some interesting dialogue. It was actually nice to see Mirror Master. I thought Christopher Priest did a good job incorporating Mirror Master. I think the art was fantastic. I mean, it was really, really good. I want to give uh, kudos to uh, Jose uh, Louis and Jonas uh, Trin. Trindade on the art and Matt Herms on the colors. This this was a, a beautifully illustrated comic. Uh, great great callbacks and flashbacks in, in the virtual reality world of this mighty Adam who's giving a pep talk and treating Malik like his sidekick. I'm not really sure where all this is going. What this series has established so far is Black Adam's primary gods now are not Olympic uh, Greek gods; they're now Egyptian gods, and that's where it, and uh, and his. His origin has been tweaked a bit, but this hasn't been a particularly uh, easy to follow story. But I do think that this is going to be one of those stories that reads much better, much, much better as a trade. And the art truly is uh, the the art does the story justice, maybe elevates the story a bit. And and if it wasn't for the art, I, I may have not have been as disciplined as I was in, in reading the story that you really got to read to get all the nuance. And so uh, mixed results at the end of the day. And uh, so I got mixed feelings about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how this resolves. Uh, this is 12 issues long, this series, which I think is probably six issues too, too long for the story. Uh, Cause I feel that this story is adding to some decompression unnecessarily. So what do you think? Yeah, I can wait. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm mute. No. No, not on mute. Can't hear me. Hello, hello. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I sort of feel the same way. It's sort of inherent into a Christopher Priest plot. Um, the way he writes, it's just he there's a lot of subtext, there's a lot of different plots, there's a lot of jumping around, and I know he uses those kind of trademarked by him black boxes with the white lettering to kind of tell us where we're at in the story and you jump around between settings, but it's, it's not always clear. And it was the same thing with his Deathstroke run, which was very, very good, but I ended up reading it in big, big chunks. And I did a reread when the whole thing was done and I got a lot more out of it. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you very much. Um, 
and then it's the idea of introducing all these other for lack of a better term black adam family characters right like we've got this dr malik character who's new and you know what's his relationship and then we're changing the gods that are basically the patron gods of of teth adam so yeah it's it's introducing a lot of complexity and what is drawing from things that have come before what is christopher priest just creating out of whole cloth what's going to be the status quo for black adam going forward after this is it even going to be clear what's this idea of creating these new code names because this guy was going to be white adam now he's bolt yeah like you said black adam himself doesn't even show up in this issue don't we have a bolt elsewhere in the in the dc universe i thought that was a member of teen titans academy wasn't bolt isn't that used already i could i mean most likely it is obviously there's the meta joke here the dog from i think it's disney movies that's called bolt but yeah (laughs) um, but anyway be that as it may i agree with you wholeheartedly this will be read better as um a trade and and all together in one collection, but there's still going to be questions left unanswered is going to be my thought. Because again, when Christopher Priest creates, when he writes things, he, he pulls in from all kinds of different sources and there's not always space. There's not always real estate to explain it all. So I think it is worth reading and I think it does what it's probably supposed to do in terms of what, Christopher Priest, what direction he was given by DC Editorial, that's probably, hey, let's align Black Adam a little more with actual Egyptian gods um, because of what was going on with the Dwayne Johnson movie, which, you know, if you've been following the news, there's not going to be a sequel and there's supposedly no hard feelings, but it seems like hard feelings. And, you know, you <laughs> yeah. can hardly blame Dwayne Johnson for, you know, he spent 10 years of his life trying to get this to the big screen and it yeah. wasn't really that well received and eh, you know it is what it is so uh, let's move on up next we have teen uh, or sorry titans united blood sport number five this is from writer Kevin scott lucas myers the artist tony avenia on colors carlos and manguel on letters so for those that haven't been following along uh first of all you should be reading this because the art is fantastic very bright primary colors there's always a little logo on every cover saying watch teen titans on hb or watch titans rather on HBO Max, and it's a—it's uh, it, good that that's on there because th- this really is a series where you don't have to read anything else. You don't have to have any context. If you have some basic knowledge of who the Titans are, you're going to enjoy this. Uh, and what's been happening is the Titans have been thrown into some sort of alternate reality where Brother Blood has basically won the day, uh, as it were, and various t- of the Titans are actually working for Brother Blood. Others appear to be uh, fighting against him and have, have sort of had their brain washing, I guess you'd say, exposed or reversed by Tim Drake, who was thrown into this world uh, from our own reality. And uh, it's basically been the Titans trying to come together and rescue the others that are still kind of brainwashed and fighting against Raven, who in this reality, although it's Brother Blood who has sort of won the day, as I said, it's not the Church of Blood that is in charge. It's the Church of Raven with Raven at, at the as the head of that church. So at the end of last issue, we saw that uh, Connor, Connell was about to be executed. Obviously, the Titans show up and save him and they rescue a, a few others. 
including who they think is Raven, uh, and along with Donna Troy. But then when they get back to their hideout, things are not what they appear. And Donna Troy is not all, still not all there in terms of what she remembers. She's um, sort of hell-bent on revenge, and she attacks who she thinks to be Raven. And it turns out that they didn't save Raven. They saved Jinx. Um, and so Jinx is not in a good way when the story ends basically at the hand or when the issue ends, I should say, basically at the hands of, uh, of Donna Troy. So, so somewhat of a br- brutal ending, but like I said, the art's fantastic. This is a, an action packed issue. It's action from start to finish. And, um, I was especially impressed with the colors. There's lots of like lightning and these like glowing energy chains and, uh, the executioner that's about to cut off Connell's head has like this Kryptonian axe that's like glowing green and all the color work is just fantastic. Like it, it literally looks like it's glowing and it's lit from within. So I got, I have to give a big shout out to the, the color artist, Tony Avina. So what are your thoughts on this? The art is fantastic. The art is fantastic. That that was the one thing that uh, I've been enjoying this story. This is so clearly in its own continuity. And I got no problem with it whatsoever because I just enjoy it. It's so well done. It's easy to follow the story. And it's it is it does take it is sort of an alternate timeline, not an alternate earth, I think, but an alternate timeline. And it's really about dealing with, you know, know, they're trying to basically their, their comrades are basically, I guess, brainwashed or their memories have been changed in this alternate timeline. And it's really just a struggle of the Titans to, to remember who they really are and get the job done and, and basically, uh, I guess, correct the timeline. Now, uh, the, the, the art is fantastic. I'm, I'm actually, I actually wish, uh, I want to give a shout out. Who's the artist? John Meyer? Uh, Lucas, I think. Uh, Kevin uh, Scott's the writer. Lucas, yeah, Lucas Meyer. Uh, yeah, Lucas Meyer. I mean, this guy, this guy is, this guy's incredible. He really is. He's, this guy should be on other titles. This guy should be on more mainstream, bigger DC mainstream titles. This guy's a keeper. I'd like to, see, I'd like to see him do more. I'd like to see him on any other, uh, like many other DC titles. I, I, he just has a particular style that I just like. And, and my God, the, the colorist there, uh, Tony Avina on the colors. Wow. I mean, you mentioned it. Uh, I mean, those, that, those pages when those, with those chains and in particular is one with Raven, uh, with, with Jinx, uh, possessed by, by Raven and, uh, the glow in the, these bright white chains, it's extremely well done. Uh, it well paced, enjoyable story. And, uh, you don't, it's not, it's not, you don't have to worry about being bogged down with continuity. So it's, it's well worth it. There's a reason why Titans United blood pact. Well, there's a reason why Titans United got a sequel and uh, it's, and that's because of Kevin Scott. He did, he did a very good job on the first one. And uh, like, as you said, this is really a nice, you know, I, I love the advertisement of the Titans on HBO max. Uh, this is, this does it justice. Yeah. Again, I highly encourage you, anybody who has like friends that want to get into DC comics, this Titans United, like either the, this one, uh, the Blood Pack series or the previous one that was just called Titans United are great ways to introduce somebody where they don't have to read anything else. Like this is what it's like to, to read a comic. Um, and, you know, the, who knows? It might t- turn them into a comic fan. So 
recommend it. Uh, all right, up next, one that I haven't read, but I know you have, Rocky Fables, number 157 from Bill Willingham, writer-creator. Mark Buckingham is the penciler. Steve Lealoha does inks. Lee Luffridge on colors. Todd Klein on letters. Continuing the previous previous Fables story after, what, like an eight- or ten-year hiatus, so. Yeah. Well, think? Uh, well, as I said, if uh, if you're if – you're, if you're a fan of fables, uh, you you really have to be following this from the beginning. This is this will be a little bit probably impenetrable. You can't just pick this up blind and really necessarily get into it. Although there are there is some humor in it. Bill Willingham is fairly good at humor most of the time. This is chapter seven called "Summer Winds of the Black Forest." This this is basically a twelve issue. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know if this is a series, but it's 12 issues long, this Black Forest storyline. And it's really about Snow White and the Big Bad Wolf, Snow White and Bigby Wolf, and their, their, their seven children sort of fitting into the Black Forest. And Bigby has taken over the Black Forest because he's like the top dog. And he's got the power essentially of a god. And uh, meanwhile, in this issue, we have, we've got uh, one of the daughters uh, is rescued. Uh, she's, she's essentially trapped in a teacup on top of a turtle, which is its own little fairy tale world. She gets rescued with the help of Snow White and her father. <laughs> and uh, uh, she's got to have some negotiations with the South Wind and her dad is the, she's like the North Wind and her name is Winter. Uh, meanwhile, we got a uh, five years pass and Blossom, one of the daughters, one of the daughters of Snow White and Bigby Wolf, falls in love with Nature Boy. And Nature Boy's father is making a power play for the Black Forest. And so that's going to put him into conflict with the Big Bad Wolf. So that's those sort of machinations are going on. A little bit of Game of Thrones there. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have uh, Cinderella, who runs the seventh branch of the American military, dealing with magics and dealing because once the fables were revealed to the world at the end of the run 10 years ago, what happened is that Cinderella has been revealed. She survived. She now works for the government. And she is now dealing with, she has to deal with fables that get out of hand. And Peter Pan has gotten out of hand and Peter Pan has uh, ultimately ended up killing a bunch of police officers in the earlier issues and this other innocent uh, character, this uh, this green archery uh, character whose name, I'm sorry, I forget. It's been a while. It's been two months since we last got an issue. She basically, uh, Peter Pan got away and put the blame on another one of another fable character who Cinderella releases from prison. And so Cinderella is closing in on Peter Pan. This is the seventh chapter of 12, this story arc. So there's a lot of moving plots here uh, and I'm enjoying it. And if you're, and uh, Mark Buckingham's art continues to be uh, great. I, I, I love it, but I'm so completely used to it. I don't know. I, I've never seen anyone else draw fables, frankly, interiors other than maybe with a couple of crossovers I think back in the day with uh, Jack of Fables but I'm enjoying this and uh, if you're a fan of Fables you're you're probably going to I'm I'm assuming most people are waiting for the trades to because this there's no question this reads way better as a trade Fables always always do but I'm just a, I'm a completionist and I got I got the entire run original run so I'm definitely on in, on the run for this but um, this is something that uh, if you're a Fables fan you you would you definitely want to pick up if you, if you're not wait till the trade comes out you'll enjoy it more yeah I would say that's that's probably the case and if you're curious about those old school Fable stories uh, from everything that everybody tells me they're really fantastic I, I don't know maybe I will we'll read them at some point but they're all out in trade you can uh, you can pick them up so. 
Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman One Bad Day presents Bane, The Last Vengeance of Bane, from writer Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter's The Artist, to May Moray on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Um, man, I'm not sure how I feel about this one. Uh, so I'm going to let you go first, Rocky, because I'm curious <laughs> as, as to your thoughts. What do you okay. think? Uh, yeah. Um, well, first I want to give a comment on the covers. Uh, the, the covers are actually pretty decent. I actually love, I really love cover A. Uh, cover B is pretty good too. I'm not even, uh, I'm not even sure who the, who the artist is on cover B. Cover C is Jim Lee. Cover D is pretty cool by some guy, Lam or Liam or somebody. That's Liam. Yeah, that's Liam Sharp. On Liam C. Sharp. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Yeah. And uh, actually, I should have probably recognized that, but that, that actually does look pretty cool. Great biceps on when Liam Sharp draws it. But uh, my favorite, my favorite cover, because I'm a Brian Boland, is, is I love the Brian Boland cover. Unfortunately, I think the Brian Boland covers for this series are all ratio variants. So they're one in 25 and one in 50. And I just don't buy those. I just. I, I just don't buy those out of principle because I'm not going to spend more than cover price for a cover. So my favorite cover is, is something I won't be picking up, unfortunately. But you never know. Brian Bolin, I love you, my friend. But, you know, tell DC to uh, share the love for guys for guys like me. Uh, I guess DC wants us to spend more money just on one comic. I would think DC would want to make the cover accessible for all of us at a regular cover price as everything else so that we can buy more DC comics as opposed to having us budget to just buy one of these. And most of the money goes to the retailer anyway. But in any event, that's a, that's a soapbox that I'm on for another day. Um, the story here... Uh, the story here written by Joshua Williamson, uh, art by Howard Porter, uh, Tommy Murray on the colors. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of processing this story. I, I think that, um, there's not much to this story. It, it's kind of funny it starts off with, with, uh, it, I guess sometime in the future, I think I feel it's in the future. Cause Batman's apparently dead and Bane is now a wrestler and he's a, he's a wrestler and he, and he, that's how he makes money on the side. And, and this open opens up uh, in a, it opens up in a way in a double page spread, letting us know the title, the last vengeance of Bane. And he fights a Batman like wrestler and he breaks, he breaks the wrestlers back and it ends up all being a show. And that's part of the whole part of the wrestling show. You know, it's like, it's, it's sort of an annual tradition in the wrestling, in the wrestling confederation that uh, Bane is in that every year they have an annual bat breaking of the Batman uh, because Bane is one of the wrestlers and um, that's his life. And then apparently he, apparently he lives in Wayne Manor because Batman's dead. And so Bane is, it looks like I'm thinking he's taken over Wayne Manor and lo and behold, there's this kid that wanders in that's stolen some venom. And Bane swore, he has sworn that he's going to eliminate all venom because in a nutshell, uh, on Batman's last mission before Batman died, Batman, sa Batman died saving Bane's life from this, uh, this grudge character. This grudge character who was uh, 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 hoarding all this venom and selling venom. And Batman at one time helped helped Bane eliminate all the venom. And so they teamed up and Batman kept it secret for, for, for reasons that don't make any sense, quite frankly. Uh, Batman never told the rest of the Batman family that he was working with Bane to eliminate all venom. And uh, in that adventure, apparently Batman dies. And, um, and then Bane, 
I guess, has sort of wallowed in a fit of depression for years, became a wrestler for some for reasons which are never explained. I didn't quite under, understand Bane's character evolution here. I thought it, I didn't think it was particularly believable from what I know of the character. Uh, Bane sort of then wallows in self-pity. And then when he finds out from this kid, this kid is trying to sell Bane venom. He's trying to sell his venom because this kid wants to pay off his, his dad's. This kid has this kid who ends up becoming Bane's sidekick at the end of the issue. This kid wants to pay off his dad's debts and his dad is a drug dealer. His dad was a drug dealer who died and has debts and now he's obligated to pay off his dad's debts from the other drug pushers and so he wants to sell Venom and Bane says, no, I'm, you know, he destroyed the Venom and Bane basically at first hated this kid but then this kid's going to help him destroy the Venom and they end up going to Texas and they end up confronting this uh, Dr. Randolph Porter who was the original creator of Venom and Randolph Porter, this doctor, becomes uh, becomes sort of zoned out and becomes a venom-like creature at the end, and they end up in this big battle. And ultimately, uh, ultimately, uh, Doctor Randolph Porter, as you know, uh, addicted to venom himself, breaks Bane's back. But just like Batman came back with a broken back, so did Bane, and he ultimately defeats this Porter character, and and. And then while Bane's recovering in the hospital, what didn't make any sense to me is that I think he, he – does he hallucinate Batman appearing? Batman's alive? And uh, well, we thought Batman was dead. So I don't know if the whole thing was a dream, if it actually happened. Is Batman – Batman's dead and then Batman comes back and Bane says he – the greatest moment of his life was when he broke the bat and that's what defined him. And so Bane – at the end wants to wanted to fight Batman to die in battle against Batman so that his life has meaning so he can die or live or move forward. And Batman, the, the, I guess the, if he's hallucinating Batman, Batman tells him, no, basically go out and find a new purpose to your life. And so that's what Bane does. Bane at the end takes this sidekick kid and they drive off into the sunset looking for new adventures and Bane looking for new reasons to exist other than always, always uh always being uh, obsessed with his breaking of the bat uh a scene that is very telling at the beginning is when bane li bane living in wayne manor on top of the fireplace in wayne manor is the is the classic picture of bane breaking the the, the back of batman sort of symbolizing that this is what defines bane this is what will always define bane and i think that this story one bad day although i'm not really sure why it's called one bad day it again it's just a Bane story this is just Bane trying to find a new reason to exist a new a new purpose for his life other than being the guy that broke the Batman and so I mean it wasn't a it just wasn't it wasn't a bad story it was decent enough I just I don't know how on earth it can be in continuity to be quite blunt uh, well, I don't because, think any of these. I don't think any of these are in continuity. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though. I mean, we said that about Tom King. Tom King was apparently said that that was in his one bad day was in continuity, even though, it, frankly, it can't be. Uh, yeah, just like this can't any, be. I mean, it. He, he he wants it to be. That doesn't mean yeah. that it is. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know, but it's not a bad story. It's just uh, you know it's, it's okay, I guess. You know, it's just you know it's not. You know, it is what it is. I don't. I know I've been hard on Joshua Williamson, but I have to say this: this story had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you got a sidekick for Bane. So 
it, it worked for me. It wasn't bad. You know, it was okay. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. Like I didn't really – first of all, I didn't think the Howard Porter art was his best work. I thought it was kind of messy at times. And yeah, it just – it felt like – and, you know, long-time listeners of podcasts will know I'm never a big fan when they try to turn a villain into a hero. And Bane is a great villain uh, for Batman. In my in my opinion, Bane is a better, better choice for Batman's arch nemesis than the Joker is because – Bane, while maybe not quite on the same intellectual level as Bruce Wayne, he's close. And, you know, as a strategist, he's real, real close. And physically, he's probably, he probably surpasses Bruce Wayne. So in my opinion, he's, he's somebody who's better as a choice for Batman's arch villain. Um, and so turning him into this anti-hero, yeah, it's just didn't quite work for me. Um, I think part of the reason that Bane and Batman kind of push each other's buttons is because they are so similar in so many ways. And when they look at each other, they see, you know, the worst parts of themselves kind of reflected back. So I just can't see even, even to get rid of Venom, I just can't see um, Bane ever really teaming up with Batman and, and vice versa. And then as far as him, you know, sort of reliving glory days, quote unquote, by, you know, breaking the bat every night as a wrestler. Yeah. It just, it was corny and didn't really work. I, I sort of liked the idea of Batman being killed, sacrificing himself for Bane, going up against this, um, what was the doctor's name again? Uh, Dr. Porter. Uh, Dr. Porter, Dr. Porter, that's Porter, right. Yeah. Howard, Randolph Porter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Howard Porter, the artist and they named the, <laughs> yeah. the doctor, Dr. Porter. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I sort of like that. I mean, even though I don't buy the team up, I, I sort of like that um, Batman sacrificing himself to take out Grudge, but then having him show back up. So like you said, apparently he didn't die. And so he's been in fighting in secret all this time. Like, I, I don't know. There's yeah. just too many things that weren't explained that didn't make sense to me. Um, and yeah, it, it ends up with Bane sort of, having, like you said, to look for a new, new purpose. Batman is, you know, quote unquote dead in terms of, even though he might still be fighting crime, he's doing it, you know, from more in the shadows than he ever has. He doesn't want anyone to let him know he's alive. Maybe he feels he's more effective that way, <clears throat> which is interesting. A different way to fight crime. We're going to talk about another book where Batman finds a different way to fight crime in a little bit, uh, which has some hints of some not so great future. Um, but yeah, Bane, like I, I don't know. Are you, are you, Joshua Winston, are you trying to turn Bane into a good guy? Like I'm not. And if you are, I just don't think that works for the character. You know, like this didn't. This felt like the with all these stories. You know, the prompt that editorial gave these writers, at least from my understanding, all the writers I've talked to, they're like, okay, boil the character down to his, his essence. You know, what is core to the character, and give us that quintessential story for that character. And the example that they all gave, right, was the way Killing Joke defined Joker, you know, and you could say in, in a bad way um, because it leaned in this idea of the Joker being more psychotic than ever, as opposed to more of a crime boss, more of almost like a kingpin like character. Like I was talking about before with the key, right? It's a Joker from, from that sort of, yeah, still a bad guy, still evil, but wants to, you know, rule crime and wants to have power to this guy who will kill at the drop of a hat and just in a way more scary, right? Because he's less constrained, but 
there's no doubt that the Killing Joke really, as I said, redefined Joker and eventually became continuity. And and that was the prompt that everybody, these writers were given, right? Like take Penguin and give us that quintessential Penguin story. Take the Riddler and give us that quintessential Riddler story. I don't feel – I mean this is a good Bane story. It's You could argue that it's a very interesting Bane story. But is this the quintessential Bane story? Well, no. I, I don't think you could say that it is because – in, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of redemption for Bane in this story. And I just don't think that works for the character. That's not that's not who Bane is. At his core, Bane's not somebody who, in my opinion, is going to work with Batman. Bane, in my opinion, like they could have the same goal. Batman wants to wipe out Venom and make sure nobody uses it. Bane wants to wipe out Venom and make sure nobody uses it. Batman might be willing to use Bane to accomplish his mission. I don't think he would want to work alongside him, but he might use him, try to manipulate him, get information from him, what have you. Bane, the Bane that I know, if Batman said, hey, let's team up and take out Venom, Bane would be like, you'll, you'll just hold me back. You'll prevent me from killing people. You'll prevent me from a final solution. You're not good enough, Batman, to be my partner. That's Bane, right, with the ego, and he thinks he's better. So to me, this just isn't the quintessential Bane story. So that doesn't mean it's a bad story. Just, I don't feel like it follows the prompt. And again, the Howard, Howard Porter art was only okay. So this is probably, I think my least favorite of the one bad day story so far. So, uh, all right. Up next again, very curious, Rocky, uh, your thoughts on this. It's Batgirls number 14. The rest is silence and it's almost a silent issue, but I guess, Clooney and Conrad, who wrote the story, just couldn't go all silent. And so there is a letter from Stephanie Brown at the end. So we do get some text. Uh, we do get some dialogue, even though it's nobody speaking. Uh, written by the aforementioned Clunrad, uh, Jonathan K does the art, including the colors and the letters. And I thought, wasn't he the one that did the art on the annual, where we really like the art a lot more? This is a much more mature art style, I'll say. Yeah, and it did give um, it did give a, a, a more mature feel, um, and so basically this is Cassandra Kane looking for Stephanie Brown, but Cassandra Kane is not Cassandra Kane as far as I know. I haven't seen anything otherwise. The last issue of Batgirls, Cassandra Kane and um, Stephanie Brown had still Freaky Friday. They still were living in each other's body. Uh, no, 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 they're back. They, they they went back at the at the last issue. Okay, they're the not in each other's bodies. They had that ritual with the coin. Yeah, Zatanna. Is that right? They they went back. Zatanna fixed it at the okay. end. Okay. So now Batgirl has some idea, or that, she's got okay. some. That makes more. Yeah, that makes more sense. I should have gone back and looked at the previous one. I thought I recalled that, but now that you say that, yeah, I, I do remember. Okay, so that makes this a little better because what I was going to say was that this Cassandra Kane. Or this version of Batgirl, which you know is the way Cassandra Kane looks, and if it was Stephanie Brown, I'm just not buying it because Stephanie is nowhere near the fighter that Cassandra Kane is. So it does make a lot of sense that Cassandra is able to to fight uh, at the level she does, and she takes on like all these ninjas, um, and her mom's even there to help her out, cutting the legs off of people, which was kind of brutal. Um, but again, even though this art is it's not really an art style that I I subscribe to, a lot of primary colors. Um, and it's just very, very static with kind of heavy lines. So it's not my favorite, but I think it is a, in terms of setting the tone at a more mature tone and not juvenile. I do think it works better on that level. 
Um, but at no, so I mentioned the the letter that Cassandra Kane receives from Stephanie Brown, basically saying, um, it's it's kind of almost like a suicide note. Like I'm I'm heading off. I love you. Don't come look for me. Blah blah blah. Now we know that at the end of last, maybe it was last issue, or the beginning of last issue, or maybe it was the annual. At some point, we saw that Stephanie Brown's father, the Clue Master, had showed up and kidnapped her. So Stephanie reads this letter, and it, apparently it's in, or, or Cassandra Crane reads this letter from Stephanie. It's in Stephanie's handwriting. She doesn't buy it for one second, and she goes looking for her. And then at the end, she does find her at this cabin, um, and she's got all these electrodes, it looks like, um, attached to her, and she's kind of leaning over in the chair, knocked out. So um, it was a solid issue. Again, it's almost a silent issue in a lot of ways, and I think it, it works on a lot of levels. Um, and I, I, I just, it's night and day, the feeling of these books with somebody other than like Jorge Corona or Neil Gouge on art. So I'm enjoying this more, even though there were a few, uh, again, this is not my, wouldn't be my favorite choice of artist, but it's, I think it's a step in the right direction. But even though there were a few words in here, I'd rather that it, there would have been no words at all. Um, but I don't know, maybe they just couldn't figure out how to transition from getting, Cassandra from where she was to being in a position to rescue Stephanie Brown. So I guess we'll see. What'd you think? Uh, I, I, I actually, this was actually, <laughs> I like this a little better than previous issues. Having said that, I'm, I'm not sure how Stephanie Brown got a letter to Cassandra Kane, unless the clue master delivered the letter. Yeah. So, I think that, that was the point. The clue master, cause the letter says, don't come looking for me basically. So yeah. I think the clue master was, you know, it sent it on her, you know, made her write it and then sent it. Hopefully it would come look for her. But yeah. that doesn't I, really work. I should have mentioned that. I thought about that too. That doesn't really work for me on any level because the clue master is supposed to be smart. The clue yeah. master would be smart enough to know. You send the letter, that's going to bring people quicker than actually. Don't come look for me means they're going to come look even faster than they normally would. Yeah, but on the on the other hand, there's a there's a part of me that thinks that Clue Master wants he he's got to know that 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 Cass, Cassandra Kane is going to go looking for Stephanie because they're uh, best friends. The Clue Master has got to know that, and so he he not only um, he not only sends has Stephanie his daughter do a letter to Cassandra Kane, but he also sends he also sends a map. Or he seems to send a, a sticky note with some clues that Cassandra Kane has to decipher, and you know, um, and it actually, and to the credit of uh, Clunrad, there, the writers uh, Becky Clunin and Michael uh, W. Conrad, there is a scene where there, where it shows Cassandra Kane actually doing some detective work, you know, and, and I apparently I don't know the Clue Master must have written, must have written the. Uh, a clue if two bat girls are company and three is a crowd what are four and five well that's nine and then you know i run around the whole yard without taking a step well that's a fence so the address of where stephanie brown was located was nine uh stone cabin you know or stone fence lane or something or, or number nine fence lane so it's very kind of like very very simplistic clue you know you know but i guess it's it's fun i, I think it's almost a little bit too simplistic 
but you know, Clue Master, I that's why I think Clue Master really wants to be found, or he wants Stephanie. I, I don't think Clue Master, I can't imagine he wants to kill his daughter Stephanie, uh, or necessarily Stephanie's best friend Cass. Um, so but but the jury's still out on that. One of the things that I'm I want to give some props to Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad for is that originally it was Michael Bendis who really screwed up. Uh, in the Young Justice series, because he uh, he didn't realize that that Clue Master uh, was was dead, and then he was, or he didn't realize that Clue Master was dead, and he wrote that Clue Master was alive, and then Clue Master, and then the Clue Rats came around, and then they brought Clue Master back, and then they didn't realize he was dead, and so there was some confusion amongst DC editorial offices, and it, and that confusion played out in the stories, and. Uh, what what I like about here is here we have Cassandra Kane actually in breaking into Gotham Police Headquarters, looking at the uh, coroner's report and discovers that the body, Clue Master's body, went missing, and then she basically bursts out, or she she uh, she make it looks like Lazarus has a Lazarus pit likely had something to do with the resurrection of Clue Master. There's actually a page and uh, where I believe it's uh, Cassandra Kane's handwriting. It says Lazarus on it, on, on the, on the picture of the dead body of Clue Master. So, so somebody probably resurrected Clue Master, who knows, but uh, it's at least some explanation for why he's alive. I didn't mind. I actually didn't mind the art here. Uh, Jonathan Case, he's, he does all the colors on this as well as the lettering in this, which is quite interesting. And I actually kind of in, I enjoyed it. You know, I'm not necessarily, I was a big fan of pink and yellow, uh, but uh, it, you know, it, it was good here. And I, I like Lady Shiva showing up, keeping an eye on her daughter. Lady Shiva's not out of this yet. She's keeping an eye on her daughter, making sure she's safe. safe. Lady Shiva literally cutting off the limbs of, of ninjas. I found that really odd that somehow Clue Master is hidden. Has, has Stephanie, you know, Clue Master, you know, the, these ninjas are, I, I don't know, why is Clue Master affiliated with ninjas and they're chasing, it, it just seemed sort of almost kind of silly. I don't really see Clue Master having that sort of backup, but, uh, but it's, you know, this issue was fun. This issue was fun. And I know that's been an attempt that Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad have been trying to do from the beginning, but this is actually the first issue where I, I actually felt I enjoyed myself more than ever before. And the irony is, uh, frankly, I'm, I actually kind of enjoyed the fact that it was more of a silent issue than anything else. So um, I, I enjoyed this more, uh, although I will say, uh, again, I, I want to continue to criticize the cover A's, which I just think the, the, continue to be some of the worst on the stands, quite frankly, the cover A's on this title. Uh, definitely, if you're going to be buying an issue of Batgirls, you're buying cover B or C. That I can virtually guarantee because I, in any event, not bad. Better than better than normal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder if if is Jonathan Case going to be the regular artist? Because again, I feel like in tone, it's a step up, and he is a solid storyteller, as evidenced by this mostly silent issue. Um, but it's still not in the DC house style. And again, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I, you just expect a certain style of art with Bat books. This doesn't have that. Yeah. Although the next book does in a lot of ways. Um, it's Batman Fortress number eight, which is the final issue. It's written by Gary Whitta. Art is by Derek Robertson. Colors by Diego Rodriguez. Letters by Simon Boland. I wondered how they were going to wrap this all up in only one issue with Superman barely being found. I actually really enjoyed this. I thought 
<laughs> it didn't go the way that I thought it would. This whole series did not go the way that I thought it would have. And I, I definitely could see the argument to have a couple more issues because we get some time jumps in the last little part of the story here. Uh, it, it works. It's not as bad as some others like Brian Bendis where, you know, we talked about it a lot with his Justice League run where you'd get people talking about what happened, you know, between one page and the next one page, we have to go do this. And then the next page you come back and they've already gone and done it. The most exciting part of the story. And they're just talking about what just happened instead of showing us the parts here that we need to be shown aren't the most important parts of the story. Um, and you'll see what I mean when we get into to sort of dissecting it. Um, so I think in that, in that way that it worked, but I still, I still think maybe it's just because I enjoyed this so much that I could have done with another issue or two, but um, I'll talk a little bit more about some specifics, but I want to give you a chance to go first, Rocky. So what'd you think of this? I honestly, I was a little bit um, kind of underwhelmed, but then I've been increasingly underwhelmed from issue to issue. I, I thought the best issue of this entire series was the very first issue because I just, I love the, the attack of the aliens and justice league. I just love that opening issue. I thought it was really good. And, but since then I, I've had a hard time really getting behind these characters that Gary writer, Gary Weta has chosen for this particular story. Uh, they were definitely, definitely different characters. Jackson Hyde, red arrow, uh, I can't, Gnort, is that Gnort? Yeah, the Greenland. No, it's, um, no it, it's, what is that? Dale. Dale, sorry, Dale. Uh, Green, and then and then even the Lex Luthor, I guess going with the goofy Lex Luthor, president of the United States, that was that had its moments. That was, I guess, kind of funny. It was clearly out of continuity. So I, I go with it because, I mean, let's face it, it's out of continuity. He can do whatever he wants. And, um, uh, you know, again, it's not bad. It, it ends with, uh, it ends with, you know, the ending really surprised me. Uh, but, and that's why you definitely know it's out of continuity. Superman essentially giving up his powers uh, as a way of satisfying the alien race because they wanted to destroy Superman because they, they blame Krypton and his father, Jor-El and Krypton for, for destroying many of their home worlds, et cetera, et cetera. And so Superman willingly gives up his powers. Uh, and if he gives up his powers, they won't kill him. And he does so. Uh, but they did so in such a way that they could, as long as Superman, as long as Kal-El, son of Jor-El, doesn't have superpowers, that's okay. And it ends up with the powers being given to Batman. So this really literally ends with Batman having the superpowers that were, were normally for Superman. And that's how it ends. And um, a nice little reference to the, the Christopher Reeve movies, uh, Lex Luthor ends up dying in this issue to the satisfaction of everyone reading it because he's kind of a jerk and the fate of Lex Luthor is kind of comical how it happens here and Otis literally becomes president of the United States so I actually enjoyed that that made me laugh out loud so kudos to Gary Witta it's he Gary Witta straight up he made some very very odd choices for the for who he chose to write and include in this story that I still kind of question whether it really works, but I don't. I don't think there's ever. I don't think there's been a DC story told in the last twenty years that has this much of an eclectic array of of of, of players to take out an alien threat. And there was a there, there was 
it was it worked though. He he got me. There was some misdirection, and it it ended. It completely ended in a way that I did not see coming. I did not see Superman making the choice he did, nor with Batman ending up how he did, or or for that matter, Otis becoming president of the United States. So, um, you know, as I'm talking to you, I'm 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 feeling better about it. I think maybe I I just need to I. I think maybe I was just too serious. I needed I need to lighten up because it, this is more of a this is almost more of a look of a belly a belly laugh kind of series a little bit like have a little fun with it. And uh, if you're going to be picking up this series of uh, if you're going to be picking up this series of Batman Fortress, just remember it's out of continuity. Have fun with it. Forget what you think you know about Batman or Superman or Lex Luthor or Green Lantern, the Green Lantern Corps, and forget what you think you know about Luthor in particular. And you'll enjoy it uh, a lot more. And it does have, it does have, you know, it does have its moments. Yeah, I think it had a lot of moments. And to your point, like I get why you might feel that way. In terms of the story structure for this series, it was sort of built backwards, right? Like usually a series will start off kind of slow. And, and that's what I mean about maybe there could have been room for a couple more issues, right? Like instead of the Justice League attacking the invading force and being overwhelmed and Superman going to look for Batman. Like that was built, like it built to that, right? Like it built to the attack and then they were defeated over the course of issues. And then it slows down and Batman goes, uh, you know, looking for Superman and, um, and then you expect more action at the end when they fight. Right. But it was front loaded with action. And then it ends up being the twist at the end that I saw, I saw coming. Like I thought it actually would have happened sooner when all this invading force, we know they're there to basically take out Superman because the house of L and it's reiterated in detail in this issue, the house of L was most responsible for kind of the fascist conquering nature of this version of Krypton that exists in this corner of the DCU, this reality, this multiverse, what have you. So they're going to take out the last member of the House of L, even though he was a baby at the time, didn't have anything to do with that, is irrelevant. And I almost expected Superman to say sooner, okay, I'll go with you, not because he thinks he's guilty, not because he thinks he should, but just because it's Superman and he's willing to sacrifice himself to make sure. I mean, the whole reason he was in hiding, and I don't know, maybe you mentioned this, Rocky, and I, I missed it. The no, whole reason he was in hiding is because he knew that they were coming and he went into hiding to prevent himself from even being detected by them. And he was hoping that they would just leave, that the people would believe that he was no longer on earth. These hunters would le just leave um, because he knew if he battled them, they're so powerful, it would be catastrophic destruction on the planet. So every choice he's making is very Superman-like, even though this, you know, is, is out of continuity. So I expected him to give up sooner, but he does give up relatively soon. And he tells Batman, no, I'm going to go with them because this is not what I want. You know, whether they're right, whether they're wrong to persecute me, this will save lives. This will save destruction. This will, you know, be Superman making the sacrifice. And then Batman comes up with the compromise or, or maybe it's Superman comes up with the compromise, you know, <laughs> a la Superman 2, just like in uh, um, uh, World's Finest, where we talked about remo removing the powers from David. Superman agrees to give up his powers. What we don't know, this is, and we don't see that. Then we get to jump ahead. Like we don't see Superman go to the planet because one of the bounty hunters, whatever you call it, that's coming to to capture Superman says, I can't make that decision. You have to go before the tribunal and they can decide if that's enough for you to give up your 
superpowers. Um, and so we don't see that. We just know that when Superman comes back, he's just Clark Kent. He's no longer Superman at all. And then what we learned further as he's talking to, to Batman, he's talking to Bruce Wayne, he didn't just give up his powers and have it have them just go away. No, the, the machine had the ability to transfer the powers. So he's transferred them to Bruce because he thinks that Bruce is is worthy, basically. And that's an interesting idea. But just so Gary Witta can you know throw us a bone and tell us, hey, maybe there's more story to be told in this universe, we get the end, the end end of the story, the last page and a half, I guess you'd say, with Superman flying above Earth, um, and he's his emblem has changed a little bit. It's the kind of pentagon triangular shaped Superman symbol, but instead of an S inside, it's a bat, yeah. and his belt. And it's red and black. And then his belt has an oval with the bat symbol, but the oval is red. So a little bit of a to Superman. And he talks about how he doesn't intend to be bound by the same oath not to interfere with human history, right? Um, if anybody knows the burden that Clark held, it's Superman, right? But he's not – he's like, I'm not Superman. Like I'm, I'm going to be proactive, I'm not going to abdicate the responsibility and sit on the sidelines. I'm going to actively try to make the world a better place. So, I mean, this sounds a little megalomaniacal in a way. Like <laughs> Batman now has the ability to like go around and destroy all the nuclear weapons or go take out Black Adam or do all these things that, you know, Clark was always a little more hands-off. Like you have to be an example and lead, but you cannot make the decisions for them. Batman, yeah. maybe not that way. Maybe a little more like Lex than you know he might he might realize. Um, Lex, who doesn't survive the issue, and that was awesome as well uh, because he tried to portray everybody and the, the 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 beans that are there to capture Superman are like, yeah. If there's anything that we hate more than Kryptonians. It's traitors. <laughs> so, in trying to save himself, Luke Doom, uh, <laughs> uh, Luther dooms himself. That was a fantastic moment. So, uh, so I yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I, I almost enjoyed it for the more so for the ambiguous ending and the fact of what could come next. Like now, you could even have a story where Clark is somehow trying to get his powers back, or or leading a resistance against Batman, yeah. against Bruce. You know, decades down the road because you know, Bruce is doing, is overstepping with his powers. Like it's a fine line, you know, it's a fine line. Like there are times where I think, man, if I had the powers of Superman, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. Maybe who has the right to make all those decisions, right? Like I get that you want to save lives, but there are gray areas there, right? Like, you know, should you go destroy all nuclear weapons? Should you be, you know, doing this, doing that? I mean, it's easy to say, I'm going to feed the people that are hungry, I don't think anybody would uh, argue against that, but you know, if you're crossing into other countries and sort of going against their um, their sovereign rights, you know, it, it yeah, there are no easy answers, despite what Batman thinks. But I, I thought this was fantastic. Plenty of irreverent lines and and humor in it from Gary Whitta and uh, and the Derek Robertson art I think was solid throughout, very much. Yeah sort of that DC house style in, in a lot of ways. So I thought, yeah, I thought this was great. 
Yeah, no, it makes people, it, it, it makes you think. It makes you think. And it, it does something provocative. And it has a beginning, a middle, and a, and a controversial ending. And it makes you wonder, Batman as Superman, is that is that more of a problem? Is the problem more significant than the solution? Or is it worse than the solution? Maybe maybe those aliens will regret <laughs> the, the deal they made. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, we'll have to see. Maybe we'll get a Batman Fortress 2 uh, coming out. Uh, or, I guess, Super Batman or Super whatever he is now. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, who knows? See. Who knows? Uh, okay, up next we have Star Girl, The Lost Children. This is issue three. I I could swear it's only issue two, but I guess we have. Yeah, I guess we saw the first one where it kind of introduced to some people, and then second one they traveled to the island and got and sort of crash landed. Star Girl, and so now we have the third issue. Jeff Johns is the writer. Todd Knock is the artist. Matt Herms on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Um, where we see the Childminder for the first time. Uh, Amiko has been captured. Stargirl gets, I guess, sort of rescued or at least acquainted with some of the sidekicks we know have been missing since World War II, Wing and Airwave and Cherry Bomb. And she gets taken to their lair, as it were, their hideout. And we find out there's a lot more than just the 13 that we were told about, right? The 13 that had the who's who pages. I mean, there are a ton of kids down here um, that have been missing, that are have sort of been erased from DC history, from Golden Age history, whether it's, you know, Little Miss Redhead or the newspaper, uh, Le- or Newsboy Legion, rather, um, TikTok. Uh, I mean, a lot of the ones that we have seen, but the, it just seems like there's a lot more than just 13 here. Uh, and then Corky Baxter shows up um, and says, hey, if you ask me nicely, I'll tell you guys, you know, what happened and, and how to rescue you. And we see the, uh, like I said, we see the child manner for the first time, but don't really know who she is because she has this freaky mask on. Maybe that's to hide her age. I don't know. Uh, but then at the end, there's an awesome uh, full page splash from Todd Nock with, uh, with Judy Garrick, son of the golden age flash who, you know, we'd never heard of before uh, flashpoint beyond, I guess. She says, I'm the boom in the thunder and I need your help getting back to my parents. They got to be worried sick by now. So that's the thing. Like time must pass much, 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 much slower on this island because these kids don't realize that it's been decades and decades that they've been missing. So again, not sure exactly where Jeff Johns is going with this, but this is so much fun and they could not have picked a better artist when you want to mix the idea of like classic silver age feel with traditional superhero art and give it a youthful quality with really good storytelling, great facial expressions, great character design, like Todd knock. I, I, he is just perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, and it's all summed up by just look at that last page. There's so many times when we get the sidekicks on, on the panels, on the pages and, and behind them, you see, almost like a transparent version of, of their mentor, right? So when Judy Garrick is running on this treadmill, you see yeah. Jay Garrick behind her. When Corky Baxter's sitting there, you see um, Rip Hunter there next to him. He's not really there, you know, it's just to give give context for somebody who may not know who these other characters are. Same thing when TikTok shows up. So I, I just, I thought the art was fantastic. Uh, it, it's an easy read. I mean, it's it's very much tied in with DC continuity, but at the same time, I feel like you could pick up the Star Girl after school special, 
read that, and then you wouldn't even have to read Flashpoint Beyond. You could just go from the Stargirl special right into this, and you you there's enough enough there that you you don't need Flashpoint Beyond. Flashpoint Beyond adds to it, but it's not necessary. Um, and I haven't watched any of the Stargirl TV shows, so I can't speak to whether or not watching that would give you enough context for this. But I imagine so, because this feels pretty new reader friendly. So what were your thoughts on it? Uh, wow. I'm Jeff Johns, man. He, he's bitten so much off and, uh, you know, I was going to say, can he, you know, did he bite off more than he can chew? Well, I tell you what, he's got a full mouth, uh, but he seems to be uh, digesting it fairly well. And I cannot believe the absolute unbelievable number of characters that we are introduced in this issue. And we are told, we're introduced to all of them and it actually feels that we're kind of getting to know them and that's insane because the number of characters we got wing airwave cherry bomb robbie little miss redhead newsboy legion big words flip famous bobby scrapper tommy tiktok uh corky baxter uh of course the child minder the child minder also known as this child minder who is the child minder well we don't know but we know that child minder refers to herself and some of the other people refer to her some of the other children refer to her as the scavenger of the time of the timeline the angel to history's forgotten uh and the caregiver of children's futures she takes it up the child minder takes it upon herself almost like she feels like she's protecting the children she's she's protecting them from the future she's protecting them from something child minder also works for somebody and she we don't really know who that is this child minder she doesn't appear to be evil she seems to care for the children but who who does she work for does she work for per degaton would be and if she does why would per degaton not kill the children if he wants to destroy the legacy of the jsa then then why wouldn't why would you know why are these children on this island called orphan island why it seems to be it seems to be very odd. We, we, we discover and are told through the story that the Our Man sidekick by the name of TikTok was the very first inhabitant of Orphan Island. And that's one of the reasons why apparently Orphan Islands, the sand on Orphan Island has, uh, is made up of Miraclo pills or Miraclo dust, which is the, the, the thing which, uh, which is the ingredient which gives Our Man his enhanced strength and, and, and abilities. And we also see Corky Baxter. We saw Corky Baxter in Flashpoint Beyond. He's the sort of the sidekick of uh, one of the sidekicks in, amongst the Time Masters and he knows that something's amiss. We know that a lot of their lost children don't seem to realize or appreciate that they're, that when they return and get off Orphan Island they're not going to be returned to their own time. They, it, there's almost a, there's a sense of tragedy about this that these kids really are lost and even if they're returned they're going to be returning to a world that they don't recognize. And that's extraordinary, but maybe some of them can be returned to their own time. Will some of them be returned to the 1940s? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not really sure here, but we know that Quiz Kid, the sidekick to Mr. Terrific, he reasons that, uh, that, uh, that Stargirl must be from the future. And he views it as the future, but you got to wonder if this orphan island... Is this orphan island displaced in, a, in, a, in its own bubble of space and time? When these children are returned, are they going to be returned to their own timeline? Or are they all going to end up in modern day, uh, in the modern day Earth Zero? We don't know. Who's the villain behind this? Who's the person that the childminder is, is working for? Who's caring for these children for? Um, 
What happened to Per Degaton? Uh, how does he plan all of this? And Judy Garrick, Judy Garrick, who uh, was the long lost daughter of Jay Garrick, does she realize that her own, that Jay Garrick, her parents don't even remember her? That's a tragedy in and of itself. There's so much potential tragedy here. We got to remember why Red Arrow, uh, Amico, was so intent, em- emotionally intent and motivated to find these lost children, as she'd explained last issue, because she knows what it feels like to be an orphan and feel forgotten about when she was forgotten about on the island uh, where Green Arrow learned his skills as a uh, as an archer. She didn't. She he didn't realize that that. Uh, she was on that island as well and she was forgotten and you know there's there's a sense of joy and happiness looking at all these kids but at the same time when you reflect upon the stories that we know to be playing out there's a sense of potential tragedy and darkness there and Jeff Johns has done just an amazing job doing this and just you know between Jeff Johns uh, all these new players coming in with Stargirl, The Lost Children, the new characters we're getting in the JSA, uh, the new characters we're getting through Mark Wade, through World's Finest, and through Lazarus Planet with these new characters coming in, affected by the, the, by the, by the volcanic Lazarus explosion. We're getting new characters, and, and, and this, is, this really is, it feels like a dawn of the DCU, and I, I, feel so, I still feel so optimistic about the DCU moving forward and Stargirl, The Lost Children. I'm so glad that this is a, a comic book that sort of feels like it's at the forefront of that. Yeah, and what he's building, again, we're not 100% sure how long it's going to last. We're not 100% sure, but man, we're sure going to enjoy the ride. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next we have Monkey Prince number 10. The Monkey King and I, part two of four from writer Jean Luen Yang. Bernard Chang is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. We saw last issue that um, the Monkey Prince met up with Supergirl, who he clearly has a huge crush on. That's probably the most fun aspect of this issue is just Marcus's kind of feeble attempts at flirting with her. Um, and this ties in very much with uh, the Lazarus Island event. So we know that Monkey Prince himself is going to play a big role, and we've already seen some hints of that in the Lazarus Island event. And so while uh, Monkey Prince and Supergirl are fighting against the ultra-humanite here, the Lazarus rain starts to fall. It affects, affects Monkey Prince, and then all of a sudden he's manifesting these little mini Monkey Princes from his follicles of his hair, um, <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on with that. The... Rain almost seems to have like a kryptonite-like effect on Supergirl because she starts losing her powers. We're also shown that um, it's the Monkey Prince's grandfather. It's Marcus's grandfather, apparently, that is the ultra-humanite. Or maybe it's more accurate to say the ultra-humanite has taken over uh, Marcus's grandfather's body. I don't think Marcus's grandfather is, is there at all anymore. But his his parents, he's still pretending to be Marcus's mother's father. Um, and they're both there in kind of, uh, his mother's still in like this heel, you know, like a Luke Skywalker medical chamber, you know, from, um, from Empire Strikes Back, like floating in the liquid or whatever. His, his father's in much better shape, but that adds another dynamic to it. You know, we've talked a lot in the series about how Marcus is going to feel about learning that his parent, his parents are basically super, super villains, mad scientists, um, so there's a lot going on in this issue. None of it's really resolved. It feels like it. you do get a decent chunk of story. I'm just wondering, with only two issues of this left, um, 
how that ties in with the end of Lazarus Planet. I mean, I guess the, I guess Lazarus Planet is going to be over by the end of March, um, because it's you know we're getting chapters every week as opposed to Monkey Prince, we're just getting uh, you know once a month. So um, I, I applaud these creators for creating something fun. Again, that introduces a lot of people to mythologies they probably aren't familiar with. That's certainly the case with myself, with all this Chinese lore and mythology. Um, and they're doing a good job of incorporating Marcus into the greater DCU. But I will say the fact that just about every issue has a guest star, it starts to feel a little bit forced, just a little, you know, kind of like back in the 90s when whenever it's launched, whether it be, you know, Ghost Rider or Spider-Man or Wolverine or whatever, you could always count on like three crossovers, right? Like so when the Spider-Man title started, you could always count on in the first 10 issues that Punisher would show up, Wolverine would show up, and Ghost Rider would show up. Because in the <laughs> 90s, in the early 90s, those were Marvel's three most popular characters with Spider-Man coming in fourth. Wolverine was number one, and Punisher was number two and Ghost Rider was number three. And so they would show up in the beginning of any series that launched because you wanted people that were fans of them to follow it over. Oh, I'm going to go try this news. Oh, Wolverine showing up in the new Spider-Man series. Let me go over and check it out. Oh, now I want to start collecting Spider-Man or what have you. So it feels a little forced. Um, but again, it's, it's a minor nitpick. And I think overall it's a really fun series and I'm no better way to put the best foot forward for monkey prince and to try to get as many eyes on, on him as possible in my mind than putting him as a main character in this Lazarus events, planet Lazarus uh, or Lazarus planet. Um, Cause yeah, I was really impressed with the first issue as much as I was like, ah, magic users, well, not for me, but yeah, Mark Wade did such a good job. And if you're curious about our thoughts and you didn't listen to last week's episode, I encourage you to go listen to it. And we'll talk about the, this week's Lazarus planet tie in here in a second, but um, give us your thoughts on Monkey Prince first. Uh, well, uh, this is, I actually think that this is an enjoyable tie-in to Lazarus Planet Alpha. Now, we, re we, re we reviewed Lazarus Planet Alpha. It came out last week. This is actually, this takes, the events of this comic take place, takes place before Lazarus Planet Alpha. And, it, and because Monkey Prince and his mythology and his origins do play a significant role in the Lazarus Planet storyline, quite frankly. I think that I would recommend that people pick this up. This isn't a complicated comic to understand. This, In fact, just this one issue is easy to understand. All you really need to know is that at, at right before it starts to rain the Lazarus rain from the volcanic eruption on Lazarus Island, right before that rain starts coming down, Supergirl is in a battle against the ultra-humanite, uh, battling the ultra-humanite. Her and Monkey Prince are battling uh, his uh, uh, grandpa Gerard, who is sort of the mind of ultra-humanite, or vice versa. I'm a little bit unclear on that. Oh, that's really, frankly, unimportant. And as they're defeating ultra-humanite, that's when the rain hits. Supergirl loses her powers, and Monkey Prince sort of helps her out. And they, they, they see, they fly around Metropolis. They see all the chaos. They see, uh, they see the rain causing people to have powers and superpowers and not, and all the chaos from the rain. And ultimately, they make it to the Hall of Justice where Supergirl... Uh, Supergirl calls in an emergency meeting to all the heroes around the world, and it ends with uh, Power Girl, Zatanna, Blue Devil, Mary Marvel, Blue Beetle, and Cyborg showing up, and they ultimately end up going to uh, 
uh, going toward the do- Tower of Fate, where they ultimately end up releasing releasing all the magical bear magic bears of the of the DC universe, which happens in L- in uh, pla- in Lazar's Planet Alpha. So everything fits here, and in particular, one of the things that happens is that although Ultra Humanite is defeated, uh, Gr- Grandpa Gerard, who is controlling the Ultra Humanite, he basically uh, he discovers that the rain uh, seems to repair his his he, he was fighting he was using as the ultra humanite he was shooting a cannon at supergirl and he notes he noted that the rain repaired his cannon so the 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 rain doesn't just bestow magic powers or science-based powers and mixes up mixes up powers on all established metahumans it creates new metahumans and it can also have an impact on on actual machinery and uh, it repairs the crystalline battery in the cannon that, that, that his grandpa has. And it also repairs a crystalline lens that, uh, that his grandfa- grandfather is going to be using to repair his phantom zone projector to try to release the, the ancient monkey God from the phantom zone to serve the ultra humanite. So, <laughs> so that's interesting. I had no idea. This is obviously new continuity. I had no idea that there was a monkey God that was trapped in the phantom zone, but that I suspect that this might very well play into the Lazarus planet storyline. And so again, another reason for people to maybe pick this up. I, I think it's accessible enough that people can get the gist of this story because I, I think it's potentially some major revelations and it helps. It helps with the flow of Lazarus planet overall. I'm going to have some comments as we get into review of Lazarus planet assault on Krypton in a moment, because I, there are some significant criticisms that can be laid into the way the editorial structured this event. But in any event, this, I, I would recommend that this issue be bought uh, because I think it's, it's enjoyable. Yeah, I, I agree. I think all along this, there's been a kind of a fun, irreverent feel to uh, to Monkey Prince, and I know it's it's new and it's kind of different, um, but I don't think that's a reason not to, to pick it up. In fact, I would say it's it's a reason to pick it up. Here's here's a new DC character you can get in on the ground floor, and yeah. uh, and learn everything you need to know with this this series. So, uh, okay, up next we have Nightwing 100, written by Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo's the main artist, but we also have art from Scott McDaniel, Rick Leonardi, Eddie Barrows, Javier Fernandez, and uh, Mikhail Yanin. And if you're not familiar, a lot of those artists are recent and classic artists on the Nightwing title, you know, over the years. Certainly the Chuck Dixon, Scott McDaniel run is a, a classic from the 90s. We also have Carl Story, Iber Ferreira, Caio Felipe, Joey, uh, Joe Prado, and Rick Leonardi handling the inks. Adriana Lucas does the colors, Wes Abbott on the letters. Um, I never at any point thought that we would be getting a wedding in Nightwing 100. <laughs> I don't know where that rumor or, or, or idea came from. So if you're hoping for a wedding, you're going to be disappointed. But I, I would say to that, and I talked about it before when we had the episode or the issue where – Barbara and Dick were in that uh, cabin in the woods, as it were, Bruce Wayne safe house in the woods. And we, you know, there was mention of a wedding. And I said, man, I just think we'd hear more buildup. It hasn't been mentioned at all. And so, again, if you listen to the rumors and got yourself excited, it's kind of on you. At no point did DC ever mention it or hint at it, in my opinion. So that's not what we get. What we get is Heartless showing up at the 
run-for-profit prison in Bloodhaven, and he breaks out all of the villains, uh, all the prisoners, and in true Dick Grayson inspirational way, he actually manages to appeal to some of the prisoners to take off their heartless masks and actually help with, uh, with Bloodhaven, help with this prison break. It's like, yeah, I know some of you didn't deserve to be in there. You were in there just because you couldn't pay some stupid fine or unjustly imprisoned. And, you know, we're all, we all need to be here together to make a better Bloodhaven. And to his credit, you know, a lot of these guys do kind of lay down there and they're like, wait, what happens next? He's like, well, then you go on your way. So I don't want to say he's bribing them. He's appealing to their better nature, but they also have the incentive of they're getting their freedom too. So it's not maybe a hundred percent altruistic on their, um, on their part. But uh, along with that, he does also have the Titans show up to help him. The Titans who are apparently going to have Bloodhaven as their new headquarters. Cause at the end he, he uses the, Pennyworth Foundation to buy the abandoned, uh, dis- damaged prison, raises it to the ground and erects a new Titan's Tower. So apparently Titan's Tower is going to be in Bloodhaven now. Now, the other aspect of that, the other side of the coin is that uh, Superman and Wonder Woman show up and say, hey, we want you to, to lead the replacement for the Justice League. Justice League has been disbanded ever since the death of the Justice League and the events of Dark Crisis. And, you know, with how Nightwing and uh, stepped up during Dark Crisis, they feel like it's time for something different. And so they, they're they charging the Titans with protecting the planet rather than the Justice League. So whether or not that makes sense, you know, it could be argued. You could just recruit all these same characters and call it the Justice League. I think there's some, I don't want to say cachet, but there's some like legacy there, right? Like the, the citizens of Earth in the DC universe they expect there to be a Justice League. So the fact that there's not one, I don't know that that really works. I I mean, just speaking from personal experience, I don't give the same weight to the Titan, the, you know, the, the name Titans as I do the Justice League. Um, but I don't know. They, they want a different sort of status quo, whether that's within the DCU or DC editorial. I guess we could, we could make that argument. But uh, a solid issue, it definitely, I think, is worthy of being Nightwing 100 from Tom Taylor certainly has the the feel. There's plenty of character moments, including one toward the end between uh, Dick and Bruce, them talking about how it's it's kind of touchy-feely, almost corny at times. Talking to Bruce is saying how Dick saved him from becoming too dark in his earliest days as Batman. And Dick's saying what a great father he was and he wouldn't have been you know, he wouldn't have gone that way and gone too dark and that sort of thing. But yeah, definitely has that classic Tom Taylor feel, plenty of, uh, of emotion. Um, but yeah, like I said, worthy of being Nightwing 100 and a solid issue. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, this, this is a nice capping off of, of frankly, Tom Taylor's run. Now he's not done writing it. That's not what I mean. What I'm getting at is, his the characterization that Tom Taylor has given Nightwing and 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 the few times that Batman has showed up in particular this issue and Barbara Gordon it's been very consistent the writing has frankly it's just been it's been excellent it's been this has been an enjoyable series now the plotting has been very very simplistic there hasn't been a lot of a great sophistication in the plot but quite frankly that's not what the majority of fans want 
and because this is a feel good comic and oh and and this is this Nightwing Nightwing had a hell of a good year in 2022 and even though Dark Crisis was a disappointment to me the fact of the matter is had Dark Crisis been advertised differently it really was a Nightwing story Dark Crisis was part of Nightwing's journey to this moment that takes place in this comic where he stepped up to the plate and the world took notice. And I think symbolic of the world is the Trinity itself, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, approaching him and saying, look, we want you to lead because you're ready. And because right now the JLA is disbanding. Now, I could sit here and nitpick and legitimately so frankly and say, why just when Nightwing is finally starting to improved Bloodhaven. He's doing so many wonderful things. Now they're going to burden him with protecting the planet? I mean, Batman, you lazy bastard, what's your problem? You've been, why don't you do it like you always have? Or Superman or Wonder Woman? I mean, really, what's what's the big deal? But, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of making a little bit of a joke out of it, but frankly, uh, this, this, feels, this feels like the dawn of a DC. It is the dawn of a DCU. And this is, uh, the art here is fantastic. Uh, there is something about Dick Grayson and this moment that just feels right. I like the fact that, uh, you know, the Titans, the, there, there's even a few moments in here where I thought, where, where at the beginning, Dick Grayson talks about, uh, I've, I'm being asked to leap. And uh, I know where I'm going to, to. I know where I'm going to land because he uh, he talks about in, in a lot of the flashbacks. Th there's a great there's a great sequence where he's he talks about how I've always taken leaps in the past, never knowing where I would land. And it shows a callback to the original Nightwing, uh, the way he appeared in his first appearance in uh, Tales of the New Teen Titans, Tales of the New uh, Teen Titans number forty two, and then the way he's evolved as a character through all his iterations. It shows that sequence. So instead of having a bunch of offhand sort of like poster pictures of Nightwing, it shows different iterations as Nightwing is reflecting on his past. He's reflecting on how he's looked and it's a great callback and a tribute issue to how far Nightwing has come to this moment where he has successfully he successfully holds off Heartless he he deals with a prison break he converts the prison into a new a new Titans tower and he does so with the help of his friends who ultimately his friends just like him are also elevated because they become the Titans and this is recognized by the Trinity this really is sort of a, a passing of the torch and not so much that the Trinity is going anywhere but it's acknowledging just how amazing these other characters are that we've grown up with. And, you know, frankly, with George Perez dying last year, one of his lasting legacies uh, in, with his collaboration with, with uh, Marv Wolfman was the new Teen Titans. And the idea of Starfire, Wally West Flash, Cyborg, Donna Troy, Beast Boy, Raven, forming the Titans. They're the new Justice League, in a sense, the de facto Justice League. There's something about it that just feels right. The, I can criticize the logic of it and maybe the verisimilitude a little bit, but I love these characters. I grew up with them. I love them. And this, I, I can't help but, to, again, I, I, love, uh, I love the character work here. Is there a lot of character evolution? Not necessarily, but there's a lot of character work. Tom Taylor knows these characters. And I think that there is some evolution of the character of Batman as well. And uh, just, you know, once again, we're moving away from the Frank Miller Batman to more touchy-feely Batman. But that's a great moment uh, where he's, you know, he says, I, I love you, Dad. And great moment between uh, Dick and Batman. And anyways, I enjoyed this. Yeah, it, it, it was good. Again, 
you know, if you if you've loved it this far, you're gonna you're gonna love this issue. So not not disappointed there was no wedding. Uh, well, uh, I I did mention that I did a little bit of a uh, I would have I would have liked the wedding. I think it would have been I. Uh, but I, I understand why DC didn't do it, but I think it would have been I think it would have been marketing gold had they done it because uh, that would have been misdirection and and I think it would have been I, I think it would have made fans super happy and uh, you know but of course they're yeah. DC they want to advertise the hell out of it and they'll they'll want to yeah, make exactly. that fifty issues and they're gonna I exactly. get it I get the logic of it but you know I would have I, I would have liked to I see the wedding. I would love it to, as a surprise as well. Remember, that's how comics used to be. You used to get yeah, surprises. Exactly. But there's no way. I mean, that's such a big deal, the wedding of Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, that they wouldn't want to have, you know, record-breaking sales that they could point to, you know, yeah. as opposed to if it had, if they had sprung it on everybody, like said nothing in the solicits about marriage, and it's still Nightwing 100, so retailers are still going to order more copies than they normally would but still nowhere near the copies they would have ordered had a wedding taken place it would have actually been you would have saw it on bleeding cool and it would have been on ebay going for 50 bucks or whatever so it's kind of a double-edged sword but yeah i just want to give one shout out to there's a wonderful page it's my favorite page because i used to collect teen titans go i got every issue of i got doubles of teen titans go series uh, and there's a page where Nightwing with with the with the Titans behind him saying Titans go. So I I perceive that as a callback to Teen Titans go, just the cartoon. And so even they got a little bit of a de facto shout out, and I just puts a smile on my face. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, Lazarus Planet Assault on Krypton is up next. There's a few stories in here. There's a Dreamer story. It's written by Nicole Maines. Art is by Skylar Patridge. Colors by Nick Filardi. Letters letters by and World's Morgan Martinez. Uh, the second story in the issue is a Superboy story, a John Kent, well, I guess Superman, John Kent Superman story that leads into his adventures of uh, Superman, John Kent, number one. It's written by C.S. Picot. Art is by Scott Godlewski. Colors are by Alex Guermez, and letters are by And World Design. And then the last story is a, a Lex Luthor story. Well, maybe more accurate to say a mercy story. Uh, and that one is written by Frank Barbieri pencils by Sami Basri inks by Sami Basri and Vicente Fuentes and colors by hi-fi with Dave Sharp on letters. I guess that's a second to last. Cause I almost forgot. I don't know how, because it's my favorite one. Um, the final story is written by Leah Williams art by Marguerite Sauvage letters by Becca Carey. Uh, and obviously Marguerite Savage, as she often does, does her own color work as well. So um, the f I, I guess let's trade off going. I'll go first on the first one, and then you can go first on the second and so forth. Okay. Uh, so the Dreamer story, I, I enjoyed. It's all about it, probably the one that ties most into um, Lazarus Planet. It's all about Dreamer trying to get the helmet of fate, find out where it is. Um, we learned that Khalid Nassar is – uh, his consciousness is sort of buried because he lost his fight with the demon Neza. The heroes want to find out where the helmet of fate is. Now I thought that the helmet of fate, I thought Batman had, it. he was wearing it during Batman versus Robin, but I guess apparently he lost it. Um, and they need to find out where it is to restore the, all the magic to all the other artifacts that Neza uh, obtained and then drained 
use Black Alice to drain the magical power from all those artifacts and imbue it into the helmet. So they, they want to return that power to sort of help stabilize the magic of the, the DC. And uh, Dreamer's the, the one who's going to go and um, try to find Khalid by finding his dreams, by finding him while he, uh, he's dreaming, and then sort of uh, figure things out from there. So I thought the art was really solid. Uh, Nicole Maines, who, if you don't know, she played Dreamer on the, I think it was Supergirl TV show, one of the CW TV shows yeah. where Supergirl uh, yeah. Made her, yeah, made her debut. So I like Dreamer as a character. I, it, she's kind of a, a modern version of Dream Girl from the Legion of Superheroes, if you're familiar with that character. So I'm really impressed with this. It's well-paced. It's well-written. Um, the art by Skylar Patridge is really solid. I particularly enjoy her rendition of Supergirl with kind of the high collar. She has sort of a, a longer neck. I, I don't know. I just, I really like her, her artistic style. So, uh, and her characterization for both Damien and Bruce, you know, Bruce is <laughs> at the Hall of Justice in the medical bay, all jacked up from the events of Batman versus Robin. So I, yeah, I thought it worked really, really well. I was pretty impressed. What'd you think? Uh, well, I, uh, first I uh, Skylar, uh, Patridge's art. I, I like it. I I think though I I don't know. She she must have done her own inks because I I liked her art better when she when she was doing the backups on the for in the Wonder Woman story on on leading in the trial of the Amazons. I don't know if she had somebody else ink her art, but uh, I it's not as good as I as I remember it in 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 those backups. But uh, it's it but it's still it's still good. It's still good. I I first of all. Uh, I just I, I have to criticize the title to this. Why is this called Lazarus Planet Assault on Krypton? Yeah, There's no nothing in this comic book that has to do with Krypton other than the fact that, well, Supergirl's in it and, and John Kent's in it. They're from Krypton. Well, the only, the <laughs> this only has thing, nothing to do only, with Krypton. They have the, a, the only thing, and this is not a defense, but it might explain why. So we know that in the upcoming action comics – we're getting um, a Power Girl. You know, there's going to be three storylines going, three separate. It's almost an anthology. Get the Superman, we get um, Power Girl, and we get um, a uh, uh, Dan Jurgens. Who's Dan Jurgens doing again? Well, uh, you mean uh, Lois and Clark? He's doing the uh, yeah, Lois and Clark. Yeah, Le Le that's right, Lois and Clark. So he's doing Superman as well, but it's kind of a, a throwback. So Leah Williams is writing the Power Girl, and so if if you are a Superman fan, and, and then also we're getting the John Kent Ad Adventures of Superman, John Kent series. So if you're a Superman fan and you're going to be reading those Adventures of John Kent, you're going to read in Action Comics. Maybe they may put the word Krypton in the title of this because it has a couple of stories in here that tie into that. That's the only thing – again, it's not an excuse and it's not a good reason, yeah. but I, that's the only reason well, that I can think of. Yeah. Well, it does say at the beginning that uh, – uh, and, and I, I understand what you're saying and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not yelling at you, Jace. I'm just saying that I, I still think it's inexcusable. It's got nothing to do with assault on Krypton. They say – at the beginning it says, long ago on the planet Krypton during the time of the prophet Jafal, a golden – a great golden volcanic eruption clouded the skies and led to a flood of planetary scope. And over the course of generations, Krypton, Kryptonians called this, uh, called it the assault on Krypton. And what does that have to do? Now we can get from that, that this is something similar to what happened on Krypton. Is this volcanic eruption on Earth similar to what happened on Krypton? 
okay, but why is this why is this particular compilation of stories called Assault on Krypton? It's got nothing to do with it. And this first story, getting right into it with Dreamer, I didn't mind it. Uh, the 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 fate the the, the Doctor Fate's helmet uh, was actually destroyed. It was shattered. That was part of the problem. That's what actually led to the destruction in the volcano. It was part of it was it was actually shattered in the battle between Batman and the demon Nezha and, and uh, King Bullfire. That and so, but but it, it it's apparently probably reformed itself. So I'm not really sure. You know, now Dreamer comes along and she basically wants to try to find Khalid Nasser. And she wants to, the, the helmet is apparently sort of like comatose and sleeping. And because Dream Girl can, or, or Dreamer, sorry, can can access dreams uh, when you're sleeping. She sort of ultimately tries to find this helmet of Naboo. And there's a voice talking to her and guiding her. Who's the voice? Who's behind the voice? We don't know. But uh, Dreamer foolishly touches the helmet of fate in her, in the dream state. And uh, she ends up getting absorbed by it because there, it's probably because this helmet of Naboo has been infect, infected by the Lazar, by Lazarus Island, infected by the Lazarus resin. Uh, and so this, the doctor, the helmet of Naboo is probably doesn't operate how it normally does. So what's the fate of Dreamer? We don't know, but we know that upon her touching it, uh, she's been essentially sort of absorbed by it. Uh, the impact that will have, we don't know, but uh, it'll be interesting to see moving forward. So, um, then there's then there's the following issue, which you can talk about if you uh, uh, regarding Super or John Kent. Yeah, so John Kent meets this guy Ash, who's out there during the Lazarus rainfall, looting constantly, and apparently the rain is affecting John as well, and has some sort of electrical discharge. At the same time, this guy manifests some lava-like powers, and he actually takes John Kent back to his apartment said he didn't want to leave him laying out there. And then as more and more things are going on, John has to go out there and, and sort of stem the tide of chaos. He takes this guy along with him. Um, and then the guy pretends to lose his powers at a, at a later time. Um, but actually what he was doing was uh, getting John to basically leave him alone. Cause John was keeping an eye on him. Let, let me bring you along with, uh, you know, all these uh, fires that I'm trying to put out all these catastrophes. I'm trying to, uh, to help with that are being caused by the Lazarus rain. Uh, so I can keep an eye on you. And so the guy pretends to lose his powers and gets taken to the Metropolis police station. And then as soon as John leaves, he breaks out, goes and steals John's cape because apparently it's electrified from the electrical discharge that John Kent had. Um, and the guy, I mean, he's just, he doesn't seem like he's all bad, but he's not all good either. I and mean, he certainly helps John in a lot of instances. Um, while he's out there trying to, to help other people. So I think the guy, he's just, his name's Ash and he's, um, he's very much just out for himself, but there's also some like romantic overtones. I'd say Ash seems to have, a, he's flirting with him. Ash seems to flirt yeah. with him a bit. Yeah. yeah. And, and John doesn't shut him down. He doesn't, he doesn't seem, you know, completely unreceptive to it, which is interesting because he has a boyfriend, but yeah, I think it's Tom Taylor setting up a little, maybe like a Batman Catwoman kind of thing a little bit. There's uh, you know, some sort of physical attraction between the two, but John makes it clear that, yeah, th what you're doing is not okay, dude. You're out there breaking the law. You're committing crimes. You're stealing, you're looting. Um, it's not, it's not okay. So 
I mean, it was fine. I, I despite him being very selfish and self-centered, I I kind of liked the character Ash. He was kind of a fun character, you know. Like he's because he's the the thing about him that came across to me was he's so unrepentant about who he is, right? Like, yeah, I know I'm breaking the law, but this is me, you know. <laughs> it's what yep. I am. It's what I do. So, yeah, kind of got a, a a kick out of that. So, uh, yeah. And I thought the, I thought the art was solid by Scott Godlewski. Uh Typically, Godlewski's art is very angular, um, and I thought this was a little softer than the art I'm I'm used to seeing from him. The line weights were thinner as well, a little bit lighter, so uh, it worked for me. What do you think? I, I I thought it was okay. I I understand the purpose of this. I, I mean, th- this this entire comic serves uh, serves the purpose of introducing. Uh, essentially just sort of new elements into the planet, uh, into the Lazarus planet storyline. And it, and the purpose is also to introduce some new characters. They're taking this opportunity to do so. I mean, DC, I mean, I got to tell you between, between the justice society, star girl, uh, what's going on with world's finest. And, and uh, again, the Lazarus planet here, there's so many new characters that are coming to the forefront here. And we're getting, we get, we get another, another, you know, mercy getting some superpowers in a story that we'll review after this. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I like Ash. He seems to be an interesting character. He's sort of cocky. He seems seems I find it a little bit odd that he would just sort of I mean, Superboy basic or, or Superman or I guess John Kent gives him an opportunity to do the right thing. But, you know, he's he's so cocky and confident. And I mean, he, you know, he certainly plays John Kent like a violin here. And uh, I, I there wasn't enough here. I don't know if John Kent is just sort of intentionally ignoring the fact that Ash is just playing him. It seemed fairly kind of obvious, certainly by the end. Uh, but maybe it's because John wants to like him because, because there's m- maybe an attraction there. So that was, that was well done and well played. And, and I, you know, I will give, uh, you know, uh, writer, uh, CS pa- uh, packet, Pacat seems to, seems to have a handle on the characters. This is certainly consistent with the characterization of John Kent uh, under Taylor and uh, Scott Godlewski. I'm not a fan of his style of art. I don't like the angular style. I don't like the skinny drawn Superman, but then this is his son, John Kent. And, but I've not really a fan of John Kent to begin with, to be quite frank. And so me not being a fan of the art and an artistic rendering, that's not Godlewski's fault. Uh, that's just the way it is, but I, I can't fault the story, you know, we got a new interesting character, Ash. Uh, I'm curious to see where they go with it. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. What do you think of the next story with Mercy? Uh, with Mercy, uh, you know, it's uh, it's just Mercy protecting Lex Luthor with Lu- at Luther Tower as it starts to rain, and uh, Luther Tower b- becomes all corrupted, and and the lights go out, and there's a blackout, and the systems become corrupted because the Lazarus rain has a uh, uh, has a way of disrupting mechanical systems and science and, and computer based systems, and and it causes a bunch of chaos, and it gives Mercy powers, and Mercy ends up developing powers she's almost like the t2000 of terminator she can turn into she can cybernetically she's a cybernetic being now she's half human half cybernetic she can look human but also turn herself into a cybernetic creature wherever she wants uh writer frank barbary does a you know decent job of scripting a very straightforward story this is mercy she's a great bodyguard luther loves her she's so dedicated to her job of protecting luther uh sam Baggi's art did a good job of conveying a lot of giving us a good sense of the power that mercy has very deadly very deadly power uh you know just 
she can slice anyone in half and she can she it's she can't be killed she's she seems to have immediate uh uh healing uh healing factor if i've got one criticism here and it's probably yeah it might be a nitpick but i'm gonna say it anyway it's i i, I didn't quite buy into lex luther's characterization this idea where you know he's lex luther's not someone to stay in the sidelines lex luther's not going to stay cooped up in his office while his female bodyguard goes and does all the dirty work for him he's going to sit up there in his office and i see lex luther the lex luther i'm uh, i'm favorable to and i realize there's different iterations of luther that you can go with and we've gotten different iterations of luther in the last four years to be absolutely sure but i i i thought that he was a little bit too much of a pussy this he, he, uh, mine my my lex luther i like him as a narcissist he you know he might he might respect mercy as as his bodyguard but he's where's why isn't luther putting on his armor why isn't he taking the bull by the reins i think he was too much of a sideline in a story and i realize this is a story about mercy i get that but at the same time, it didn't have to be told at the expense of Luther just sort of sitting back and not. Why not have Luther and Mercy work together? Have Luther put uh, it would have been more possessed, more believability to me because this wasn't Luther. I would have liked to have seen Luther have more gravitas in this story, more agency, which is ironic because this was a for for Mercy. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I almost think the argument could be made that Luther knew that something had happened with Mercy when the, the lightning hit. And it was like um, he wanted to see what would happen. So I, I, I don't maybe know. Maybe. Uh, well, you, you could be right. I never got that sense from the story, but uh, I'm not saying yeah, you're, yeah. you're wrong. You could be right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly wasn't overt. But, I mean, if I'm giving Frank Barbie, uh, Barbary the benefit of the doubt, that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like Mercy. You know, I've liked her ever since the Superman Adventures cartoon. And at various times, she has had superpowers. This is one of those times, obviously. So yeah, uh, I like it. And whether or not she keeps those powers, what it might mean for the future is interesting. And, and perhaps the most interesting thing about Mercy is the fact that she's not evil in the way that Lex Luthor is evil, but yet she's so loyal to him. Um, and there's been various store, uh, stories over the years that maybe she's got, you know, romantic feelings for him and, and whatnot. And so kind of kind of interesting in that way. Yeah. And she does have a very interesting one of the covers. One of the alternate covers has Mercy on the cover and half of her body is as the cybernetic being. So it's a it's a pretty good looking cover, too, by uh, Zerdi. Yeah. Um, and her. Yeah. Her powers are really cool. Like the fact that she can just concentrate and you know, change her body um, is, is pretty interesting. But my favorite story, as I mentioned before, is the uh, is the Power Girl story, both in terms of, of the voice that Leah Williams gives to Power Girl and the art by Marguerite Sauvage. This is probably my favorite Marguerite Sauvage art I I can remember. Like, I know I've, I've seen her do some fantastic art previously. Um, there's been times where her art comes across as very static, I've, I think when we were talking about the Superwoman uh, of Tomorrow from the uh, DC Future State event, I talked about how static the images were and how it almost felt like a, a children's book. There's so much more movement and sense of movement in this. And maybe it's because, you know, especially on the first couple of pages, there's all these different versions of Power Girl, these different iterations as she's falling through this like dream um, that she's having 
And so I, I thought the art was fantastic. The colors are a bit of a muted palette, which sort of suits the dreamlike state that Power Girl's finding herself in. And, and just the more vulnerable aspect of Power Girl where she doesn't feel like she's got it all figured out, right? Like the last time I saw Power Girl before this was in the One Star Squadron, which left a lot to be desired. And that was very much um, a version of Power Girl that was very self-assured to the point of it being over the top. And then toward the end of it, we found that she, she was kind of overcompensating because she didn't feel worthy. This is a more relatable power girl. That's not, you know, all wrapped up in herself and try, trying to boost herself up, boost her own self-esteem, trying to kind of buy her own press as it were. Um, this is a, a, a car, a, a Karen star rather that knows that she, she has work to do, you know, that knows that she has trauma, that, that, worries about the fact that she's all alone and feels a little bit isolated. And, and honestly, that's, that's a interesting aspect, an interesting angle to approach power girl because she's very powerful, just as powerful as Supergirl is. But ev there's even that portion of Supergirl's personality that feels a little separate, right? Like she's not accepted on the same level of like the original seven, right. Of the justice league. You know, she's not wonder woman. She Batman or Flash or Green Lantern or Superman. She's not on that level in terms of either popularity or kind of acceptance or exposure. And now you, you could turn that down to maybe one-tenth, one-tenth of the amount of notoriety and exposure that Supergirl has, and that is Power Girl. Yet she's just as powerful. So you could understand why she might have these feelings of of inadequacy in a lot of ways. So uh, if Leah Williams is going to be exploring that, I find that to be uh, really interesting. So pretty cool. And yeah, by far and away, my, my uh, favorite story in the, in the anthology. So what did you think? I, uh, I was, well, I share your comments about, about, about the, the art. It, it is a, an improvement. I, I just, I I still think it's it w I would like it to be a little bit more uh, look a little bit more uh, action orientated. I I also I, I I don't like I don't like the direction of the writing itself. I don't I don't like this story here at all. Giving Power Girl telepathy, I just think that's just how boring. I just find that so boring. And then this Omen character looks ridiculous. Nothing happens. She meets this. Uh, not only that, she meets this Omen character. And I, I only say this because this is Leigh Williams. But am, are we supposed to get some? Uh, is there supposed to be an attraction between Power Girl and Omen here? Did you pick that up? Pick up on that? Not at all. Okay. Well, uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot more. There's a lot more here than there was in the in the in the Miss Fit, Megan Fitz, Fitzmartin uh, Tim. Uh, uh, it, original issue when in Batman Urban Legends. But I, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. Uh but I, I don't understand I you know at the end of Lazarus Planet <laughs> Alpha, Power Girl is fighting the Silver Horn King. This and uh why isn't he drawn here? All of a sudden she's all of a sudden she's not. All of a sudden she's just falling. Why not give us a battle with the Silverhorn King? Draw that. 
Give us some action pack. Why not have him and have and have her all of a sudden have this and then have this omen character show up and and help her defeat him and and then and a good way to meet him. This I just you know I I didn't mind this visually. It's it's very interesting. The art's really good. I got so high compliments on the art because it is. I'm. I guess it's taking place in her mind. But if it's taking place in her mind, where's Power Girl's body? If this is all a hallucination, if this is all a dream, what part is the dream? What part is real? What part isn't? There are no backgrounds here. And you can justify it in saying, well, there's no backgrounds because it's all taking place in your mind. Or you can say it was easier to draw because if I was to draw, if they were to draw more action, you'd have to draw backgrounds. Maybe I'm being a little bit harsh. I probably am. But I just wish there was a little bit more here. Uh, this Omen character... Now we got two telepaths, so she meets a telepath. Uh, you know the when I when I look at the when I look at the, uh, in action comics, this is going to be continued in Lazarus Planet Omega, which is basically the end of the story. So that tells me we're probably not going to see Power Girl again until then. In the meantime, we're going to see her in action comics. So we're going to go from this scene to action comics where. Is we're we're just going to be delved in with stories with this Omega character? I don't know. I've never heard of this of the. Pardon me. This, well, uh, not this Omega character. Her name. Um, sorry, her name is uh, Omen. This Omen character. I don't know who she is. And but I got to tell you, you know, looking when, when Power Girl is having this flashback and she's they're telling her you'll always be alone. Uh, you're a lo you know basically you're a loser. She's having because she's never fit in anywhere. These are these are common Power Girl tropes which no one's ever done anything effective with. So the challenge to Lay Williams is what? How is she going to make Power Girl interesting and make her feel and give her some sense of agency? And so far, what I'm seeing, uh, look. I want to. I want to be able to put my foot in my mouth and say, "Lay Williams, you did a fantastic job." This doesn't really pull me into Power Girl. It doesn't make me want to read action comics. This is. This doesn't do it at all. As a matter of fact, and I'm wondering if this is the style of art that we're going to get in action comics for Power Girl. I'll be honest. I'm. It's just. I, Power Girl. <clears throat> I. I don't think it's the. I don't think this is. This is the art. But I don't know. I'm. I'm. This was my least favorite of this whole thing. I'm 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 most disappointed in this. I, unlike you, so I really hope to be proven wrong, but we shall see. Yeah, I just went back through and flipped back through it while you were talking. I I, I don't at all get any sort of sexual tension between these two. I don't know. Like well, I never I never said sexual tension. I never said that. I said uh, hints of, of an attraction there. And uh, it's right on well, that page where she says, you know, is this really, are you real? Yes, but I just had the strangest dream about you. And, and she says, likewise, you mean you were in my nightmare too? Sorry, telepath, can't help overhearing your thoughts. Uh, and uh, just the way she smiles. And, and bear in mind what Marguerite Bennett uh, has, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, Savage has drawn before. Or these, you know, she has drawn some pride issues in the past. So I'm just saying, I, I'm... <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, they were in each other's dreams because there there's something going on with magic. Obviously, Omen's a telepath, and there's perhaps some new powers that Power Girl has from being exposed to the Lazarus Reign, where she's got some telepathic powers as well. But I don't know that that means there's some sort of same sex relationship on the way. But I could be wrong. You, I was yeah. wrong about Tim Drake. <laughs> well, so yeah, you picked no. up on that. 
So. Well, now I, I hope you can say that I was wrong on this too, and and again, I, you know, okay, I mean, it's like every time one, every time the two that two characters of the same sex are on the same panel together, and you you make that. Well, I'm worried that it's their DC's going that way. No, I I, I, I only did that. Broke. I only did that once. I did that yeah. once, and I'm, I was I'm right. Not you, I'm not saying you specifically, but there are those people that every time they're on the page, that's what they say. Guess what? If you say it every single time, some of the time you're going to be right. Yeah. And then you can say, oh, look, I was right. You yeah. see, go woke, go broke, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, but I, I agree with you. I hope that I, I hope that that's not what's happening here. Cause it's, uh, it's, it's the pair, you know, it's power girl with, she's like the ultra. She's like, she's for men. She's a character meant to appeal to men. And it would be a catastrophic mistake if they did that. Catastrophic. In well, my I think mind, just because she's in a same-sex relationship, she stops being attractive to men. Well, she's still, I mean, she's still power girl. She still has the yeah. window in her costume. Well, yeah, I guess, and you know, I guess we always have the lipstick uh, lesbian fantasies that we can rely yeah. on. Thinking and, about power girl, sure. And at the end of the day, she's a fictional character, so it doesn't matter how hot she is. It's not like you're going to run into her, you know, at a bar or something. What do you mean she's not real? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, all right, on the last. Book. Uh, out of the last book before we get ourselves in more trouble here. Yeah. Lesbian terms notwithstanding. Uh, the New Champion of Shazam, number four, from Josie Campbell. Art by Evan Doc Shaner. Letters by Becca Carey. Um, Doc Shaner obviously does his own color work as well. I, I won't say that I was underwhelmed by the ending because it, it sort of fits in with what we've had all along, which is just a solid – story for Mary Marvel, which feels like it would be very much at home in the Silver Age. What we do learn is that the villain here, her community college professor, is actually revealed as the daughter of Dr. Savannah. This is Dr. Georgia Savannah. And because of the trauma of being a supervillain's daughter uh, and her perceiving that to have ruined her life, she's gone down a path of trying to redeem the name Savannah, but then she sort of fell into the same traps and tropes that her father did. And obviously Mary Marvel and this being a very Silver Age feel, uh, feeling story, obviously Mary Marvel comes in and, and saves the day uh, and rescues everybody. And Dr. Savannah, Dr. Georgia Savannah is, uh, is thwarted. Um, and then at the end, we get uh, a little hint of Billy Batson showing back up as the Lazarus planet rain is falling and there's a green overtone to everything. And Mary thinks that she sees Billy and then she turns around for a second and looks back and then he's gone. And so she goes flying off to find out what is going on to the entire world and why Billy's right in the middle of it. And uh, we're going to find out what comes next for the new champion of Shazam in Lazarus planet. We once were gods, which we've already seen uh, Mary Marvel in the Lazarus Planet Alpha, so we know she's going to be a character that is in the Lazarus Planet event. Um, and I will say, like, I really like Mary Marvel as a character, but Billy's still Shazam to me. He's still my favorite Shazam character. So I hope that Billy's not off the page for too long. And And despite how challenging it is because there's so many characters actually my favorite Shazam stories, my favorite Shazam runs are the ones like the most recent one that ended um, partly because I think both Jeff Johns has a lot going on with movie and TV stuff, as we talked about many times, but also Dale Eaglesham was the artist on that 
series to start and he's not the fastest, but that series, it, it had the, it had the whole family, right? It had, you know, Eugene and Darla and it had, and Freddie and everybody. And that, that, that's actually my favorite. I like when they're all there, all five or six of them or however many it is. Um, that's actually my favorite version, you know, not to say that the power of Shazam, Jerry Ordway back in the day wasn't great, but I just like, they're all different. And the, the fact that their costumes are different colors, you know, you got green, you got blue, you got red, you got yellow. I just, that's my favorite version because they're all so different. Um, and I feel like I'm getting my cake and eating it too. Um, so yeah, we'll find out what happens with Mary. And hopefully by the end of Lazarus planet, Billy shows back up. So what do you think about this? I, I thought it was good. And it was a nice wrap up. I, I actually, I like the idea of Georgia Savannah, uh, it, it, I actually like her better than Doctor Savannah. She's she's a little bit okay. She's I guess equally as insane as her uh, I guess as her father. But uh, it's uh, it's it's nice to see them sort of expanding the maybe a little bit more of a modern up updating of the of Shazam family mythology. It's good to see. I the ending is what interests me the most because it has it has Mary Marvel flying off to Shazam. Uh, she sees a vision of Shazam in a green light, which is likely the the, the light of the, the the lava of the Lazarus rain and what have you. And we know it's going to be continued in Lazarus planet. We once were gods. We know that's going to be continued in Lazarus planet Revenge of the Gods, which ties into the one which ties into the events and plot lines in Wonder Woman, which basically have the gods basically trying to uh, force people to worship them so that because they're losing their power, and because obviously Sh- the Shazam, Billy Bats, and Mary Marvel, they have their they get their power from the Greek gods, Olymp- the gods of Olympus, and that ties in with obviously the gods that Wonder Woman is dealing with, with Hera and what's going on in with the Clunrads over in Wonder Woman. So it's going to be interesting to see. I'm I'm really hoping that even though I haven't, you and I haven't really been huge fans, especially me of, of the current Wonder Woman run uh, on the Clunrads, the Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods. I'm hoping that that's a different story. The last issue of Wonder Woman was pretty good, so I'm really hoping with Mary Marvel. I really like Mary Marvel. Billy Batson's pretty cool, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, this was a nice little series. Uh, kudos to uh, Josie Campbell. I think it was it was a nice four issue series done in one. I think that for fans of Mary Marvel, I think uh, you'll be happy with this story, and 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 hopefully people will follow her into the adventures in the Lazarus Planet. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, Mary Marvel, she has a lot of, a lot of potential. She's just a really good character, you know, a good, a good solid character. So, um, so that's it for the single issues. There were a couple of others that were, we didn't go over, uh, Harley Quinn, the animated series Legion of Bats number four is also out today. And there was also, was there one more? No, I guess that was it. That was the only one that we didn't discuss. And then in terms of collections, there's three of them out today, Batman Urban Legends volume four trade paperback. There's also a giant omnibus collecting Batman and Robin by Peter J. Tomasi and Patrick Gleason has an omnibus uh, hardcover. And then Suicide Squad Blaze hardcover, which was very strange, very different from, I think it was Cy Spurrier, right, that wrote that? Uh, and that that was, yeah. yeah, with Aaron Campbell art. So that's out as well. Uh, quick reminder, don't forget, everybody, go over to my Twitter Twitter.com forward slash the comic source. And please like that pin tweet. Or if you follow me, just go and like it. I really need to get to those 100 likes. Um, and then uh, I also want to mention that the final Kickstarter for 
Area 51, the Helix Project is out. I have an interview with the writer, friend of the show, Trevor Fernandez-Linkowitz. Um, so it's a good story. This is the final issue. He's managed to successfully kickstart all five previous issues, so I don't see why Excellent. this one would be any different. That's a pretty great accomplishment to have your first six yeah. Kickstarters all get funded. So yeah. definitely uh, check that out. And there's some other creator-owned um, interviews I have coming up this week as well, so check those out. Anything you have coming up that you want to tease, Rocky? Uh, well, I do have a review of Area 51, a Helix Project, from the issues to date. Uh, and, uh, you know, shout out to Trevor Alankevich. Um, uh, you know, at, at the risk of sounding paternal, I'm, I'm so proud of him because he's, 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 fr- he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. And I'm so awesome to see him doing so well and his, his, his successful Kickstarter. So shout out to Trevor. Congrats on that. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be reviewing that and probably I'll be doing more, some more YouTube shorts and what have you. And, uh, you know, probably in, in some indie, independent comic reviews, but uh, I'm looking forward. I'm catching up on some of your interviews as well. So, um, you know, you got any new coming out other than Trevor's yeah. interview? Yeah, actually, I have an interview with Megan Fitzmartin that's coming up. I have one with Joshua Dysart about Odin's Eye that's coming up. Um, those are the only ones I have scheduled, um, but there's probably some others, Dennis Cowan, Dan Didio, uh, that I just need to, to reach out and set up a, a time and date. Uh, they've already, we've already agreed to do it. And now we just need to work out the logistics. So, yeah. So, uh, anyway, book, a book of the week for, uh, for DC. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with, uh, for myself, I'm going to go with star girl, uh, the Lost Children. I I quite enjoyed that issue. Uh, yeah, it's man, it's it's a tough one. There are a lot of great titles. Nightwing des- is deserving, deserving. Yeah, uh, but I think I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go with Flash. Um, I was really impressed with the second issue of the uh the one minute war, sixty second war. Uh, the stakes really feel like they've been raised got introduced to a lot of characters and I, I maybe would have leaned into Stargirl Lost Children just because there's so many new um, characters and the art was so fantastic, but you picked that. So I'll go with, uh, I'll go with Flash. Uh, really, really solid. So well, it's good. Yep. All right. Uh, don't forget to like the tweet, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. If you're listening to us on the audio only look for Rocky's channel, it's comic space, boom, exclamation point. And you know what to do from there. Subscribe, like, ring the notification bell, leave comments on this video. All that really helps uh, with the algorithms and whatnot. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time, be sure you head over to wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to the comic source. That way you don't miss out on any of the upcoming interviews. So that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate you guys joining us always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Please tell your friends about us. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever platform you use. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also, be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. 
or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. The Comic Source is a member of the LRM Podcast Network, so when you visit the site, be sure to check out some of our other podcasts like Los Fanboys, our official movie and TV podcast hosted by Joseph Jammer Medina, Netflix and Chill, hosted by Nick and Carrie, covering a wide variety of film and television topics with Game of Thrones and Star Wars as particular favorites, and finally, Mike and Mark's Marvelous Adventures, as these two former athletes share their love of sports and geek culture by chatting about anything and everything sports and geek related. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.